Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. Here we go. Welcome to an HBC special report. I'm John Adams along with Chris Kendall. And today's special report is titled, The Song Remains the Same. Mr. Kendall, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing good, and we were just, uh, before we started the recording, we were just talking about music and um, guitar playing and things like that, and um, I've had something kind of in the can, as they used to say, uh, for, and that's not the toilet, by the way. Um, Right. That's, uh, I've had something in the works for, for a while. It's just kind of been on the back burner and kind of forgot about it. And um, it has to do with music. And it has to do with culture creation and uh, messaging and not really predictive programming, but just kind of, oh, I guess, I guess a sort of type of alchemical programming in a way. Um I think what I'm trying, uh, what I'm really trying to get around to is, uh, in in music, uh, especially in pop music, uh, especially when there are songwriters that you yourself, the listener, are not aware of wrote, who wrote the music. You're just kind of into the performers. You don't really know that there's people who, behind the scenes who write these songs for for these pop stars. Um, I think the listening audience might be aware that some of that stuff might go on. Well, today we're going to talk about a couple of these uh, songwriters. And what these songwriters do is kind of in the same vein of what Frank Albo and Scott Onstock talk about with architecture. Except these people, instead of being architects of buildings and building alchemical slash hidden Freemasonic architecture into buildings, there are people who do that with music. Mm-hmm. And it's not always in the music that you think it is. So, you know, um, maybe someone might be, you know, familiar with a Led Zeppelin song or something and you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, those Led Zeppelin songs, they're, they're kind of, they've got some kind of strange lyrics going on there. What's that Stairway to Heaven song all about? That's obviously got some occult meaning behind it, right? Whatever it is. And that would be an example of something more kind of overt. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but the songs that we're going to talk about and the writers that we're going to talk about today are a little less overt because these would fall into the category of female pop. And I think in today's world of pop music, um, 
with all of the symbolism in the music videos and in the live dance performances, uh, it's gotten a little bit more overt as far as the occult symbolism. Um, you know, Lady Gaga and Katy Perry and uh, so on and so forth, Beyonce, all that. They do live performances and their performances are riddled in and, and their music videos are riddled in, you know, symbolism that have to do with uh, occult stuff. Um, and then when you get into the lyrics of, of some of their songs, it's it's pretty blatant as to what it is that they're talking about. But this was actually going on, you know, it's actually been going on quite a long time. Um, but rarely ever, you know, do you, do you actually see the people who write the songs talked about or um, looked at or look at or um, even referred to in the um, just in the reference that they themselves have written songs for many, many artists? Not just uh, Madonna or whoever it is, right? So, so actually, these person, this per, sorry, these people are having um, wide spectrum influence because they're writing songs for so many different artists who are all on the radio at the same time. Yeah, I just think about that for just a second. How much influence one individual can have by being a songwriter and then a songwriter for these songs that pe people, especially younger people, are going to be listening to. And from what I understand that, like, like you'll see, the, we talked about this before, how these music videos will have these high view counts. And, and, and people are like, wow, I mean, that many people listen? It's like, well, maybe not necessarily, but what happens is uh, younger people will watch the same thing according to these studies i heard about they'll watch the same thing over and over and over and over like uh just just until they wear it out however many times they listen i don't know but they'll it, it's um it's, the numbers are high like one person like one individual listening to it I don't know if that counts it every time or what, but no, but whatever the case, this is uh, highly in influential. I guess that's the point. Right. And, and you're correct. And I, I think that, you know, that definitely has been one of the major proponents of rock and roll since it first started. Um, I guess even since radio even started, you know, music being played over and over again, um, I think with the advent of the teenager, the invention of the idea of a teenager, uh, especially with rock and roll radio, I won't digress off into this, but that's kind of the first time you, you get this idea where, you know, people are calling into the radio stations, can you play that song again, right? Mm -hmm. And you, you, you have these, uh, you know, just to give an example, I used to have these recordings of many more, but I used to have these recordings of old live broadcasts from KRLA in Los Angeles from the 50s when they were actually playing the the songs. Uh -huh. um, they, used, they used to make these uh, records of, of actual live broadcasts from the 50s uh, when rock and roll was first coming out. And, it, you know, it would be 
you know, they play, uh, you know, they play a Fats Domino song. They play, you know, something, you know, the, the Skyliners or something. Then they play a Buddy Holly song. Then they play Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley. And then they'd go through it again. And then someone would, you know, he'd come in and say, and this just came in from the San Fernando Valley here. Another request to hear us rock around the clock one more time. Let's play it again here. <laughs> just you know? what happens. Yeah, right. So so there's a lot of repetitive stuff in these ideas and symbolisms get embedded into it. And when you're talking about the early rock and roll stuff, it might be um, a little bit more simplistic. But um, the, these particular gentlemen that we're going to talk about here um, – I'll just get to the meat of it. Uh, one one guy uh, is named Rick Knowles. Oh, before you go into that, John, uh, yes. based on what we're just covering there, I wanted to read this uh, short paragraph. I, I'm sure you're familiar with this term, but I thought I would just do this as sort of a refresher. Like, okay, MK Ultra, everybody's familiar with that, and the Dr. Ewan Cameron. Uh, Psychic driving, you've heard of that, is a, psych- is mm-hmm. a psychiatric procedure in the 50s and 60s in which patients were subjected to continuously repeated audio messages and a loop tape to alter their behavior. In psychic driving, patients were often exposed to hundreds of thousands of repetitions of a single statement over the course of their treatment. They were also concurrently administered muscular para- uh, para- paralytic drugs such as curar to subdue them for the purpose of exposure to the loop messages. Uh, the procedure was pioneered by Dr. D. Ewan Cameron and used and funded by the CAA's Project MKUltra program in Canada. That's interesting. Yeah, and, you know, one of the things that we kind of touched on over the, over the you know, three years of, the, of these uh, calls is that MKUltra isn't really what it's claimed to be as far as being some sort of mind-controlled assassin uh, program where they're, you know, you know, because from what we've concluded is there really isn't any need for mind-controlled assassins if nobody's really getting assassinated. Um, Well, yeah. It's it's sort of this um, (laughs) lore that surrounds it that's like, um, oh, it makes it salacious and titillating and Oh yeah, the assassins and they're among us. And uh, uh, you ever heard of the? Uh, I think it was called the term for it was black awakening. Where mm-hmm. and yeah. talk about end times prophecy. That's one thing that <laughs> I've heard that being brought up. It's like, oh yeah, the MK Ultras are gonna that are among us are gonna be triggered with their uh, you know whatever their whatever's you know catcher in the rye or what have you or that lyric in that. Uh, Beyonce song is going to trigger them to yeah. yeah pick up a gun and just start shooting a killer or a knife or whatever start killing everybody. Yeah, it's the 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 thing of it is is what they were doing is they were is they were testing you know it wasn't it wasn't mind control it was the K is for culture as well as control you know it's MKK Ultra. Mind control culture. I think there might be something to this, John, because uh, where I get exposed to some of this music would be at uh, Harbor Freight. I go there sometimes and like they're playing <laughs> pop country and I, I feel like picking up like a screwdriver and jamming it through somebody's skull. I don't, or, yeah, you know, or my own skull yeah, maybe. Is that MK right, Ultra? Yeah. That's what it is. That's, 
That's um, it's it's uh, yeah, it's not that you know people listen listen to music and commit suicide because of the lyrics. It's because they don't want to hear that song ever again. And you know, no, but ser- but seriously, yeah, my MK Ultra is all about creating mind control culture, and so I think that example that you gave there is the it were tests that were being done on um, taking drugs and listening to music at the same time, repeated over and over again, right? Well, that was big. Well, it still is to some degree, but that's really big big in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. I, I I go on YouTube all the time, look up songs, and I'm sure you can concur with this. How many of the comments are that on there? Man, I love listening to this song when I'm stoned, or I love listening to this when I'm tripping. Oh yeah, definitely. Like, um, yeah, it's really common. Really common. I mean, it doesn't even matter what kind of music it is. I mean, you can, like, you know, go look up like a Captain and Tennille song, and someone's going, "Man, this sounds." great when you're stoned i i really don't want to you know kill somebody i was just cho- i was exaggerating i'm joking around but i i i've been in stores where they're playing a pop song and it's so it's dude it's so unbelievably repetitive it's like it, it and so agitating because usually i could just tune it out it doesn't really bother me but sometimes it just i might be in a wrong mood or something it's like okay I mean, I'm going to have to get out of the store. It's just, it's, it's driving me out of the, it's driving me crazy. I can't stand, yeah. if they repeat that again, I'm going to, I'm going to lot of, out. There's a lot of songs, even dating back to the 1920s, that have that title too, You're Driving Me Crazy. Um, well, let's get into who actually writes these songs. And one of the guys who's been doing it for a long time is a guy by the name of Rick Knowles. And uh, I'll just go off Wikipedia here. Richard Wright Knowles Jr., better known as Rick Knowles, an American songwriter and record producer. He is a multi-instrumentalist and has written with or had his songs recorded by a number of artists, including Lana Del Rey, Adele. Uh, Some of these artists, I don't know who they are. Edya Gorniak, Marina and the Diamonds, uh, Lick, Lick Lee, Jamie XX, Brandon Flowers, Madonna, CeeLo Green, Sia, Dido, New Radicals, Rod Stewart, Nelly Furtado, John Legend, Andre 3000, Tiesto, Santana, Tupac, Fleetwood Mac, Isabella Skorupko, Belinda Carlisle, Mel C., Jerry Hallowell, and Stevie Nicks. Knowles co-wrote the title track for Celine Dion's album Falling Into You which won the Grammy Award for Album of the Year in 1997. Additionally, Knowles co-wrote the track White Flag for Dido, which won the 2004 uh, International Hit of the Year. Um, So Mr. Knowles here, and I'm just going to pick a particular time period that Mr. Knowles was kind of prevalent because what what happened was is – a year or a couple of years ago, Aaron Franz was doing, I think it was a year ago, Aaron Franz was doing a series on occult themes and popular music. And I was talking to Aaron on, on just through email about kind of some ideas I had about 
music and we were even planning on maybe doing a music episode together um which never came into fruition um but but one of the things i came across because i was thinking about some of these songs that like my mom and my sisters used to listen to when i was little and i'm not going to digress off into that but the some of these songs they had they have some pretty weird lyrics or titles and um hold on let me close this window there's a helicopter going around over here black helicopter show up when you bring up Nick Rick Knowles yeah, yeah black when you bring yeah exactly so you're already ready for it you have your black helicopter curtains put up <laughs> <laughs> so so um so here let's go let's let's look at some of these lyrics so that, that's what I want to get into and I want I want you to notice these similarities and one of the things we're going to see repeated over and over again is there's a couple of um, there's a couple of themes that run through a lot of these songs we're going to talk about separation and rejoin you know rejoining after a separation and the hermetic idea of as above so below is always going to be present. And um, like I said, you can go back and listen to Aaron Franz's, what, seven or eight part series, Occult Themes in Popular Music. And he talks about this. Um, and he, there's an episode where he particularly focuses on the 1980s, which some of these songs are going to be from that era. Um, but a lot of songs have the theme of, of the fall. And if you get into the... the the occult so so I'll, I'll give a basic kind of synopsis of it there's this idea that at one time um this is like i said this is a very basic kind of explanation at one time we were hermaphrodites and then the story of genesis is the removal of eve from the man right so the man and the and the woman got separated Right. I'm not saying this is what I believe. I'm telling you in a cult kind of uh, esoteric, not non-Christian belief, there's people who believe this in, in the occult. Mm-hmm. So at one time we were hermaphrodites, and then there's an occult interpretation of Genesis is um, the creator split the hermaphrodite in two, creating the male and the female, right? Right. Or... Another thing that can be referenced is at one time um, everything was one and then, you know, kind of symbolic in the fall of Lucifer to Earth. The, you know, it's the fall or the fall of man, right? Right. Or, uh, you know, the fall of Lucifer to Earth. There, there's kind of this splitting um, and it's it's symbolized in, in a lot of stuff. It's that, you know, once there was – once darkness and light were – were one there was no darkness there was no light and then it it split and became opposites of each other like i said before chris and i we don't believe that darkness and light are opposite or anything in nature is anything but complementary to each other it's all complementary it's not opposite um yeah but this is the occult belief this is the kind of system that is superimposed on top of 
us and nature. Or they call it dualism. Dualism. Um, um, you know, and this is, and then when you transpose it down into the microcosmic world that we live in, into, you know, what might be economics or philosophy or physics or any of that type of stuff, it becomes dialectics. So, so these themes are going to run through these songs. So like I said, keep in mind, there's hermetic symbolism in here as above, so below. Well, the biggest hit of them all that is openly, blatantly in your face about hermetic symbolism, I'll just read the lyrics. When the night falls down, I wait for you and you come around. And the world's alive with the sound of kids on the street outside. When you walk into the room, you pull me close and we start to move. And we're spinning with the stars above. And you lift me up in a wave of love. Ooh, baby, do you know what that's worth? Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. They say in heaven, love comes first. We'll make heaven a place on earth. When I feel alone, I reach for you and you bring me home. When I'm lost at sea, I hear your voice and it carries me. In this world, we're just beginning to understand the miracle of living. I was afraid before, but I'm not afraid anymore. Now, one of the things that Rick Knowles likes to use, you you might think that, okay, there's nothing really to those, you know, John, come on, you might be stretching a little bit. There's nothing really to these lyrics. One of the things that you're going to notice through through these lyrics is um, there's always going to be elements of nature inserted into the lyrics. Right. Okay, so, so we're spinning with the stars. You lift me in a wave of love. So, so now you've got um, stars and, and water, earth. I'm lost at sea. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's always, there's always um, things like that. Another thing that they do is there's always going to be one kind of reference in the song that kind of brings it into the modern day. So it's not so generalized that somebody who's listening to it in the time period, like this song when it came out in 1987, it's got to be a little bit... Um, uh, it's got to have some familiarity to the time period. So... The world's alive with the sound of kids on the street. Street would bring it up to the modern day, right? Mm-hmm. Because streets aren't existing in, you know, uh, ancient time periods or anything like that of kids on the street outside. So um, another thing that seems to be prevalent in in his song and other people's songs is the mention of a room. Okay. So this is one thing I see all I see throughout these songs too. So she says, when you walk into the room, you pull me close, we start to move. Okay. So whatever it is, um, these themes are pop up. So that's, you know, the, obviously Chris remembers the song by Belinda Carlisle. She was the, she's the, former singer of the band the go-go's and uh she had this song heaven is a place on earth um interestingly enough uh the go-go's actually have a song that aaron franz did an 
that analyze that I actually, you know, even before he, I, he did it, I, I had thought of this. I'm all, man, you know, if you listen to this song in a certain way, it actually sounds like it's got like some sort of esoteric meaning to it. And that's the song Our Lips Are Sealed. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. By the Go-Go's. So if you think about the lyrics to that song, you, you if you're listening to it and, you know, you see the video of them, they're just driving around in a convertible 59 Cadillac or whatever. And... um you're thinking, okay, they're talking about they're talking about a um, you know people gossiping about them. But if you listen to the lyrics of the song and think about it in a different way, it's like, well, maybe that's not what they're talking about. It's you know, can you hear them? They talk about us telling lies. There ain't no surprise. Can you see see them? See right through them? And then uh, what? doesn't matter what they say in the jealous games people play our lips are sealed mm-hmm. and and Aaron postulated in that series that that's actually talking about a secret society but it's got a double meaning to where you could actually think oh it's just a song about gossip yeah and so I was, I, I was, you know, I was like, wow, you know, that's, th- that's true. You know, I, I definitely agree with that. And I'd actually, like I said, I'd been thinking about that at one time or another. Well, um, there's no doubt about it with Mr. Knowles's songs here that that type of stuff seems to run through his songs and we know that the phrase, you know, heaven on earth goes back to, you know, Egypt at least, you know, when, you know, uh, allegedly, you know, 6,000 years ago, some people say eight, 10,000 years ago. I don't, but that's what some people say. So anyways, another song by Belinda Carlisle um, that Mr. Knowles wrote uh, that used to get played on the radio all the time that I remember, remember these same things. And I'm just using these for evidence to back up what I'm talking about here. This song's called Circle in the Sand. And it was the same thing with this one. I thought about this. I'm like, okay, what does circle in the sand mean? Um, um, so anyways, sun. Here, here's the lyrics. Sundown all around, walking through the summer's end. Waves crash, baby, don't look back. I won't walk away again. Oh, baby, anywhere you go, we are bound together. I be I begin where you end. Some things are forever. Circle in the sand, round and round, never-ending love is what we found. And you complete the heart of me. Our love is all we need. Circle in the sand. Cold wind, tide moves in. So there's the reference to the sea again, the waves um, that was in the Heaven on Earth song. Cold wind, tide moves in, shivers in the salty air, day breaks, my heart aches, I will wait for you right here. Oh baby, whenever you look for me, can you see forever? I begin where you end, we belong together. Um, 
Circle in the sand, round and round, the rising of the moon as the sun goes down. Mm-hmm. And you complete the heart of me, our love is all we need. So there's a lot of symbolism in that song. And one, one, once again, as above, so below represents opposites. He's got a lot of opposites running through through these songs. And I don't want to get into the actual, like, analyzing each song, like getting down to the nitty gritty of each song, because everybody can kind of pick it up. But, well, you know, if, uh, I, let me add this to it. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm looking at the lyrics of this uh, go-go song, Our Lips Are Sealed. It says, uh, there's a weapon that we must use in our defense. Silence reveals when you look at them, look right through them. Oh, that's oh, wait, when wait, 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 go. If you go back, you, um, the way that you phrased it, it didn't make sense. Okay. Watch, watch this. This is how the it's phrased in the song. Okay. There's a weapon that we must use in our defense. S- silence. So what she's saying is their silence is their weapon that they're using. And then it says reveals. It says when you look at them, look right through them, that's when they'll disappear. That's when we'll be feared. That's what this yeah. says. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> How does that make sense in, in the uh, context of it just being about gossip? I, yeah, right. So, so when you see that Miss Belinda here has, you know, which alleged allegedly her and Jane Weedland wrote the lyrics to that go-go song, allegedly, but then she has this connection here to Mister Knowles, who seems to um, have a little bit of knowledge when it comes to uh, the higher mysteries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, keeping secrets and. Um you know, knowledge being power. Uh, I heard that conversation with you and Ab, uh, Tim on the, on the fakeologist. Oh yeah. And, uh, I would, I would disagree with him on the subject of weather control. Y'all touched on that a bit. And it's like, uh, mm-hmm. well, I don't know if I can prove that to anybody. I mean, there seems to be a lot of material out there that supports the idea, but then it's like, if if it can be done, and I don't, I don't I don't know what the technical barriers to doing uh, weather manipulation. It seems fairly straightforward on some level. I mean, you can go watch videos where NASA has this uh, water vapor generator, and it, it's just generating massive clouds of vapor into the air. Clouds, I mean, hydrogen, hydrogen, oxygen. Uh, mix mixture and just pump it out in the atmosphere and it's like well okay you got your cloud and then it shows it raining right after they create this cloud it's like well you got rain so that's weather is that full-blown weather control no but it's weather manipulation and that i mean that's been documented to exist so i don't know that that i don't think that part of it's debatable but it's like you know you can have this knowledge and keep it secret and then sometimes it takes the, it just simply takes the form of either like a 9-11 being a stage play, not for real, or it can take the form of a technological advance that's kept uh, mostly under wraps, even though, 
you can go out and pull out all these articles about weather can weather manipulation. Um, I, I have collected a considerable number of different articles, you know, of, of different types of weather manipulation and all that. But it's like it, it, the average person is not aware of it. So it's kind of like so whenever a, a, a weather so-called event happens like we've had recently that I, I know this is kind of going off topic a little bit, but I think it's all kind of ties in together about this uh, idea of secret societies and secrecy. It's that as long as the average person has no knowledge of it or it's not it's not in their vernacular, it's not in their headspace, it's not going to be something that they're going to uh, think about. It's like, yeah, you could just keep running these games on people. And uh, well, we just recently had these uh, hurricanes and these uh, flooding in, in Houston. And it just so happens that Al Gore's uh, <laughs> Inconvenient Truth Part 2 is out in theaters now. They got a they got a movie coming out in a few weeks that's about a, a, ge, a geo storm or some crap that's about uh, uh, some earth destroying storm. And oh, that's right. Just, I heard, I heard yeah. that on um, I heard that on uh, No Agenda. Oh, they right. talked about it. Oh, I didn't catch it. I can't listen to podcasts because my iTunes won't launch for some reason. I upgraded it, but uh, yeah, I, uh, uh, I I think that. Um, yeah, knowledge is power. And then, you know, back, I'll try to bring this around back to a subject at hand, is just music. It's like, um, you know, you can have all this influence over people. And then if you look at the presentation, it's, it's pop music. And it's like presented as entertainment. And it's like people won't look askance at it because, oh, it's just entertainment. There's nothing nefarious about it, nothing, nothing troubling about it. Couldn't possibly be. It's, it's entertainment. It's for fun. I mean, look at the Go-Go's. Aren't they pretty and nice and they're dressed hip and they're driving around in cool cars? I mean, there's no way they can be uh, influence peddlers deceptively, could they? I mean, not – and see, they don't have to be consciously aware of it either. I mean, it's not that's not a component, necessary component of it. Well, they did come out of the punk rock scene and, I mean, look at what we've talked about with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they did come out so, of the punk rock scene, huh? Yeah, a lot, a lot of, uh, right. They, they were they were a punk band before they were a pop band. You know, um, like I was saying, uh, it's an interesting part about Mr. Knowles, and we, we were discussing this the other day, is how Mr. Knowles and the other gentlemen we're going to get into here um, write all of, write primarily for female artists. Um. I wonder how this fares in, you know, the world since the 1960s that these men um, who I, I've seen interviews with these guys and these guys, um, at least they claim that um, that they have families and that they're um, heterosexuals. Uh, mm. All all of these guys, they're not um, openly homosexual if they are homosexual. Um, so. There's these men who are writing all of these songs for women, um, and they're writing these very esoteric, you know, songs with with the lyrics involved in it. And it's interesting that the well, well, I'm I'm putting this within the framework of the world that we live in, right? And I'm not saying this is either bad or good. I'm saying that these guys are, like you're saying, they're influence peddlers, they're culture creators. 
Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that in the world that we live in where women want all of this feminine power and all this woman power, that these men write these songs that kind of dictate how women are going to feel about relationships or women's power or that type. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, and not only that, but it gets defined. Women's power, women's empowerment gets gets to be defined for you. I think it's an important thing. It's like uh, I I refer to it as like, yeah, women put on a jock strap and get out there with the guys, be a man. It was like, how does that feminine? I I don't know. You know, it's just one thing that comes to mind. I saw it. It's just, it was just so over the top. It really stands out. But it was like a Katy Perry. She's another one. And, of course, she's always going to be, uh, you know, towing the line or whatever you want to call it. But there's this one video where she's mad at her boyfriend. She gets in a fight. I guess they break up. I don't know. what. The, but it's showing you that scenario. And then she's going to show him by joining the Marines. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, well, in the in the, in the new one, in the, her new video, she's playing on a she's playing basketball, um, <laughs> and she's got a boy's haircut. She's got a boy's haircut, and yeah, it's pretty pretty lame. I, I won't I won't even get into that. Let me just read yeah. this real quick. At the end of that song, it says the rising of the moon as the sun goes down. That's very interesting because the moon. I'm reading from a book here, M. Esther Harding, Women's Mysteries, Ancient and Modern. Um, The Sacred Marriage. Um, She says, A modern woman, in seeking to establish a relation to the moon goddess or feminine principle within herself, may have to submit to her own instinct, recognizing it not just as an intellectual concept, but in fact as a determining influence in her whole life. Or she may need to accept the eros, order of relatedness, and submit herself and her own wishes to that order. In the ancient world, only a few women lived in their whole lives as prostitutes in the temple of the moon goddess. So that's another interesting part about a lot of this stuff is the way the goddesses are always represented, especially in the ancient mysteries, um, that's why I don't believe in any of this divine feminine, you know, male, you know, when it gets into the occult, when, you know, the goddesses are basically there to be prostituted and or raped by Zeus. <laughs> <laughs> that's their end of the deal. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and go, and, oh, go and, ahead. No, I just, yeah, I was just reiterating what you said. It's like, that's, yeah, that's, that's the, uh. That's the is that the empowerment part? I don't know. You get raped by Zeus. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you know Zeus will you know rape the guys too. Yeah, that's how you get. But yeah, yeah, that's how you, that's how you get um, Aquarius and um, yeah. That that's an interesting. Well, that's an interesting story in of, of itself. Uh, but what? Um, Anyways, let's get back into some lyrics here. Um, Stevie Nicks, of course, she always had, uh, you know, there was always um, 
there's always claims that Stevie Nicks was into witchcraft. And um, I've read a few interviews with her, and she seems that she's definitely into some sort of um, occultism, no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the song Rhiannon by Fleetwood Mac is supposed to be about a witch. Um, a little bit later in Stevie Nicks' career um, in 1989, I remember this song being played on the radio quite often. She had already kind of parted ways with Fleetwood Mac. Um, and this song was written by Mr. Rick Knowles. And it, it was called Rooms on Fire. And like I said, it was one of those things when I was a kid, like I would hear uh, when my mom would listen to the boring adult contemporary radio station. Um, and it was one of those things where the lyrics would, you know, like, what is this song talking about it? You know, now that I'm older, it makes sense to me. So uh, remember, for some reason, the, the word room seems to pop up quite a bit. So once again, the song is called Rooms on Fire. She said, somewhere out in the back of your mind comes your real life, and that life you know. It seems like it was the creation of some of the things, some of those same old things. It seemed to be the only thing left out in the light. She had trusted many, but been unfamiliar with almost everyone but you. Well, maybe I'm just thinking that the rooms are all on fire every time that you walk in the room. There is magic all around you. If I do say so myself, I have known this much longer than I have known you. She had trusted many, and then there would be someone who would enter into her presence that she could sense for miles. She dreamed of her wanton luxury, and then she laughed, and she cried. So there's the op- there's the opposites, laughing and crying. Mm. And she tried to taunt him. And he hated to be separated from that picture. So separation. Um, then there's this uh, little uh, a little part here. Long nets of white clouds my memory. Long nets of white clouds my memory. Ooh, there's magic all around you every time you walk in the room. Um. In a 1989 interview, Nix gave a personal insight into the meaning of Rooms on Fire. This is the, this is the funny thing. She didn't write the song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why didn't they interview okay. the guy who wrote the song? Yeah, Rooms on Fire is about a girl who has to go through, who has to go through a life like I have gone through, where she finally accepts the idea that there will never be those other things in her life. She will never be married. She will never have children. She will never do all of those things. She will never have that part of life. That's very interesting. She will never be married and she will never have children. That, that seems to be the pronounced um, thing, uh, especially during that time period. That was the message for women. So Stevie Nicks never got married. Never had kids. Um, apparently not. I'm not that familiar with her story too much, so um, I guess not. I Let's don't see. see it. Oh. Well, she was with uh, Lindsay Buckingham, according to Wikipedia. 
till yeah, 1976 is when they broke up. So, mm-hmm. she's had so this, a, this was a bit of a dry. This spell. was, yeah. But it's interesting. That was a. If a woman was to read the interview as to what that song's about, that's the message that's being portrayed for the time period. Mm-hmm. Right. This song is about a woman who will never be married and never have children, and she accepts that as being what it is. Right. So that's kind of the message. But then there's an esoteric message laid on top of it because it's not actually written by Stevie Nicks. It's actually written by Rick Knowles. (laughs) (laughs) Who's married and has kids. Right. (laughs) Okay. Um, Now, another guy... Is that is that all the Rick Knowles songs? Let me see. No, Rick Knowles wrote a song, for, wrote a couple of songs from Madonna. I'm not familiar with this Madonna song. Apparently, it was a hit at some time for her. It's called Little Star. I know Lucky Star, but I don't know Little Star. Little never Star. forget. No. Never forget who you are, Little Star. Never forget how to dream, Butterfly. Hmm. Oh, all the. Remember, oh, that 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 right there. That means that Madonna's MK Ultra Monarch Butterfly, right? Yeah. Uh, never forget how to dream, Butterfly. God gave a present to me made of flesh and bones. My life, my soul. You make my spirit whole. Never forget who you are, little star, shining brighter than all the stars in the sky. Never forget how to dream, Butterfly. Never forget where you come from. You are a treasure. You are my star. You breathe new life into my broken heart. Never forget who you are, little star. Never forget how to dream, butterfly. May the angels protect you and sadness forget you. There's no reason to weep. Lay your head down to sleep. May goodness surround you. My love, I have found you, little star, shining bright. So, once again, another kind of elemental thing is referring to a star. Mm-hmm. And 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 like I was saying, it's like you, so someone may be thinking, okay, these guys are crazy. That that song is not about that. Well, where does the idea of referring if if um if you're saying to someone you love, why would you compare them to a star? I don't know. You see, like, what do stars and dreams have to do with each other unless they were connected at one point by esoteric philosophy? Okay. You see my point? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, it doesn't um, lend itself to any conventional kind of uh, verbiage about uh, relationships as kind of this... uh, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess a case maybe could be made either way, but not considering what we've already looked at, I don't think. Well, the only other place it comes up in as far as, you know, well, like I was saying, Madonna had a song called Lucky Star. And in a previous time period, that would be a that would be associated with fortune or
Still there, John? He broke up. Yeah, can you hear me? Uh, yeah, you, barely. Yeah, I, I stopped talking because I heard it go out. Oh. Anyways, um, I was saying the um, so the lucky uh, so lucky star in you know in a previous time period people used to um think that if they saw a shooting star it was good luck. Mm-hmm. Right. Um. Or when you wish upon a star, like the Disney song. Or if you see a falling star, you're supposed to wish on the star. You're supposed to make a wish right then, and your wish will come true. That's right. So dreams, you know, your dreams really do come true. Remember that when you when you wish upon a star, it makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires will come to you. Your dreams will really do come true. So that in and of itself is, well, first, I mean, that's not, that's not anything Christian. No. Speaking from a modern America, and, and th- you know, this mostly has to do with America, all of these songs and all of this culture that we're talking about. So that would have to be something from a, an occult or magic type stuff. You see, but yeah. it's kind of ingrained. It's kind of ingrained into our culture, to where you can have a song about wishing on a star or, or referencing to dreams. That, you know, calling someone a little star. It's kind of ingrained into the culture without someone actually thinking about it. It's like, okay, what does a star have to do? And what star is it? Actually, are we talking about what star was it originally? Are they talking about Sirius? You know, I mean. Right. Are they talking about the Eastern Star? So I read this real quick. Uh, definition of Hermeticism is a religious, ph- philosophical, and esoteric tradition based primarily upon the writings attributed to Hermes Trace Magistus, or Thrice Great. These writings have greatly influenced the Western esoteric tradition and were considered to be of great importance importance during both the Renaissance and the Reformation. The tradition claims descent from Prisca Theologia, or Theologia, how do you say that, a uh, doctrine that affirms the existence of a single true theology that is, present, that is present in all religions and that was once given by God to man in antiquity. So a lot of people are believe in this or some form of this or some version of this and uh it's it's sort of this um occultism that uh is adhered to and believed in but then it's not this this is not something the average person is going to you know like hermes trace trace magistus is not a household name by any means i don't believe Except for if you say something's hermetically sealed, that's where that comes from. But other than that, I don't think if you say, what, who's Hermes Trace Magistus? Nobody, the average person wouldn't know what you're talking about. No, they wouldn't. And, and to, back, and to uh, back you up, 
from page 774 of Morals and Dogma, the chapter Knight of the Sun or Prince Adept. Uh, this is where um, Mr. Pike here tells us how to simultaneously rule to um, manipulate culture as well as uh, veiled in the allegory of going to going through the um, degree of the night of the sun it says there are two hermetic operations, one spiritual, the other material dependent, the one on the other. The whole hermetic science is contained in the dogma of Hermes. Engraven originally, it is said, on a tablet of emerald. Its sentences that relate to operating the great work are as follows. Thou shalt separate the earth from the fire, the subtle from the gross, gently with much industry. It ascends from earth to heaven, heaven on earth, it ascends to earth from heaven and again descends to earth and receives the force of things above and below. Thou shalt by this means possess the glory of the whole world and therefore all obscurity shall flee away from thee. This is the potent force of all force for it will overcome everything subtle and penetrate everything solid. So the world was created. All the masters in alchemy who have written of the great work have employed symbolic and figurative expressions being constrained to do so as well as to repel the profane from a work that would be dangerous for them. Okay. So what he's saying there is it's part of it, part of being a master of alchemy is concealing it so that nobody knows because it'd be too dangerous for like you and I to know about it. Right. Right. And yeah. um, I, I brought this up with uh, on that call with uh, Scott, Scott Onstott and Frank Albo because this mm -hmm. came up with uh, alchemy. And um, so you think, like, what, okay, what is this alchemy? Like, what exactly is it? And, and, and I'm always interested in what are the – what's the practical applications of it? What, are, what is it in its essence? Like, well, how, how can it be – how is it applied? How is it used? And I've I've ran across stuff and that goes into it a bit uh, that um, describes that part of alchemy and maybe not the whole entire uh, practice of alchemy is is related to this, but it is partially related to like a mapping of the subconscious mind, where it's. Um, but then it, it, you could write about it or refer to things in allegorical terms where you're using symbology. And uh, but then it, it now and I believe, too, that there's also a component of this that says, like, if you have, let's say, a some kind of a personality trait or something that it can have a correlation with the uh, material world in the form of a element or a metal or something and these things can be combined and they have like this um sort of uh, sort of uh uh how do you put it like a like a like a a map where you're where uh like you're referring to earlier about hermeticism as above so below well you have the elements corresponding to um 
uh, components of a of a personality or a person, and and then you could find um, uh, it's it's kind of difficult to no no you're on the right track it's it's, yeah. it's like it's like a periodic table for emotions and um uh you know. Transmutation uh, is like where you take uh, lead and turn it into gold, mm-hmm. right? So it's yes. like this. Uh, so you could say, well, that's uh, symbolic for taking someone through the steps of initiation, so they they achieve this uh, higher state of consciousness, or have you like a lot of stuff you'll hear but, also in New Ageism and all that, right? But also on a microcosmic level, and that's what I'm saying. A lot of these books are veiled, or, or songs, or or whatever it is, are veiled in allegory because it'll be like, oh, see the symbol of lead turning to gold. That's the symbol of taking your anger and turning it into positivity. Or yeah, I mean that could be one. Uh, you see, yeah, yeah. There's there's all sorts of microcosmic applications for it, and. And um, well, when I get to this other quote from the book we've been talking about, the turning point, um, he's going to basically explain that. Uh, well, he's going to he's going to basically explain that the the purpose of alchemy is to blend everything together. That that, that basically what you have is you. When you're a master of alchemy, I'll just get into it now. When you're a master of alchemy, your your job is to is to run opposition, is to control opposition. Um, for the purpose is it's like these opposites that we've been provided within the system. We've told these are opposites. You control. In, you know, you have this kind of controlled chaos inside of a, a scientific lab or inside of this, you know, alchemical metallurgy you're doing, right? Mm-hmm. And it's through the controlling of the opposites and then blending them together to get the desired form, which we've talked about. This, this is no surprise. But that's how you learn to be a master is taking what you have out of the opposites and learning how to blend it together to get what you want, to get the desired outcome. Yeah, and then the the old lead to gold thing is just a is probably one of the more iconic kind of uh, references to alchemy that most people are familiar with. But that so it it. But yeah, there's a lot more to it than that, uh, other than this idea that oh yeah, if you know you can turn some base metal into gold, how how you know what a wonderful you know power over the elements you would have. But yeah, it's 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 but yeah, that's uh, it's uh, symbolic. It's not you're not or you know it's not that's not actually what what the um, ultimate goal of it is. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's not. Because yeah, he, like you, you, you can. Um, uh, well, I don't know. Like writings of Newton and stuff. He said he was obsessed with that. 
So like, what, okay, Absolutely. what are you supposed to be like one of the smartest dudes that ever lived? What was he fooling around with all that stuff if it's not possible? You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And well, let me um, let me finish this here. He says, "All the uh, this is Pike again. All the masters in alchemy who have written of the great work have employed symbolic and figurative expressions. Being constrained to do so, as well as to repel the profane from a work that would be dangerous for them." as to be well understood by adepts in revealing to them the whole world of analogies governed by the single and sovereign dogma of Hermes. So in their language, gold and silver are the king and queen or the sun and moon, sulfur, the flying eagle, mercury, the man, woman. <laughs> okay. Hmm. Now, yeah. mercury, is Her- mercury is Hermes. It's just the Roman version of Hermes. So like we've talked about before, he's a hermaphrodite. Mercury, Mercury, the man, woman, winged, bearded, mounted on a cube hmm. and crowned with flames, matter or salt, the winged dragon, the metals in ebullition, lions of different lions of different colors. And finally, the entire work has for its symbols, the pelican and the phoenix, the hermetic art is therefore at the same time a religion let me say that again. The mm-hmm. Hermetic Art is, is therefore at the same time a religion, a philosophy, and a natural science. The Hermetic Art is therefore at the same time a religion, a philosophy, and a natural science. As a religion, it is that of the ancient Magi and the initiates of all ages. As a philosophy, we may find its principles in the school of Alexandria and the theories of Pythagoras. As a science, we must inquire for its processes of Periclesis, Nicholas Flamel, and Raymond Lull. This, okay, this is the best part. You ready for this? Okay. <laughs> this, is the, uh, this is the best part. The science is a real one only for those who admit and understand the philosophy and the religion. Let me read that again. The science is a real one only for those who admit and understand the philosophy and the religion. And its process will succeed only for the adept who has attained the sovereignty of will and so become the king of the elementary world. For the grand agent of the operation of the sun is that force described in the symbol of Hermes, of the table of emerald it is the universal magical power the spiritual fiery motive power it is the odd the od according to the hebrews and the astral light according to others therein it is the secret fire living and philosophical of which all the hermetic philosophers speak with the most mysterious reserve the universal seed the secret whereof the kept and which they represented which they represented only under the figure of the Cadgesses. Uh, could uh, is that the uh, the medical Caduceus. symbol the Caduceus the yes. intertwined snakes 
Right, and and you know the what that originally is. That was uh, in the Bible. It's the it's the story of um, when I believe it was it Joshua that was uh, leading. Okay, there was a uh, Moses. Moses, no, yeah, Moses was going through the wilderness, and then they were attacked by the fiery serpents, and then he made a he made the uh, caduceus to keep the fiery serpents away, which is like winged serpents or something to that effect that would uh, right. bite people. Now, the thing of it is, though, that that story of Moses is interesting because there's a similar story with that's what that's what the story that's what Hermes is. That's the that's what's the wand of Hermes with the caduces on it. Yeah. The wand of Hermes is two snakes wrapped around a staff or it's also called the staff of Mercury. Okay. And sometimes you'll see like depictions of Mercury. I can't remember if that I can't remember if that Mercury in the middle of um there's a big statue of Mercury and it might in his hand he might have a caduceus. I can't remember the ca- and I can never get the pronunciation right. It's either caduceus or caduceus. I think it's Caduceus. Oh wait, oh wait, Sadducees. That's what I always think of the Sadducees, um, the the priest class, right? Isn't there a priest? The Sadducees, yeah, they were the uh, okay, Jewish yeah. sect. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Uh, interesting thing. Oh, you got the tennis shoes, Nike, right? Nike is another form of uh, Mercury, and Mercury is also associated with. Uh, uh, it's like the god of uh, of uh, trade and uh, commerce. Commerce, yeah, yeah. He's the he's the quickness, the quicksilver, the quicksilver. And then, uh, so Nike's always kind of been known for its kind of exploitative practices, going, uh, you know, exploiting third world you know, workforces overseas. Kind of, kind of the leading the way in a lot of that or moving their factory be the one of the first companies to move their factories overseas i remember one time when i was in um i think it was in korea when i was in the in the navy like you could get off the ship and they had like these shops outside and they had you know actual nike tennis shoes from nike uh factories and you could you could pick up a pair for like 10 bucks mm-hmm. so they, yeah but they were they're so uh, spread out all over the globe, Nike and their factories and their influence and all that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting that um, now now the thing about the here's the thing about Nike though. Nike is the female. It's it's a little Nike's a little bit different. You're on the right track. Nike's a little bit different than Mercury. Just let let, let me here. I, I looked this up here while you were talking about that. So Nike is called the bestower of victory. She was a winged goddess mm-hmm. who flew who flew about the battlefield, choosing the winners and rewarding them with glory. And the chance for further battle. However, it is claimed she did not actually bestow victory herself, since this critical decision was made by the fates and by the more powerful gods. She was a swift messenger of destiny, 
and her winged form was the last thing a loser saw through his bloody haze and the first sight that fledged itself out to the winner's joy. Her body was like alabaster, her wings white as snow, and her hair fiery gold. In both death and glory, she was a beautiful apparition. Okay. So Nike um, is base is um, she's like a female Mercury, but Mercury is a, is a hermaphrodite. <laughs> yeah. So there's like um, sort of the uh, yeah. That's a lot about like with the with the so-called gods. They had like these different uh, personifications of the kind of same general idea, I guess. Yeah, one is like a feminine and then one of the masculine, the goddess of victory, I think. She's also known as that. Yeah, and the other thing is, is some of the gods themselves have male and female. To get down to brass tacks, when you get into all this stuff, the gods themselves are hermaphrodites. Hermaphrodites, okay. Yeah. They're all hermaphrodites. It's all hermaphrodites, Chris. Just everywhere. It's just all hermaphrodites. It's a it's a system of hermaphrodites. So, like, what is the <laughs> point of it, though? I mean, like, I, I I know this is true. I know this is all over the place. But like, what? I mean, what is the the point? Is to return creation back to its alleged original state. Like there was a, the gods came down and separated men and women. He took the took the uh, rib out of Adam and made woman, and then uh, that was the separation. And originally, Adam was hermaphrodite. Is that what they're trying to say? Yes. So the goal is to bring it. So I guess this goes into Gnosticism too, where the idea that. Jehovah God is the the uh, like a demiurge, like a evil god. Jehovah demon. is the rebellious god, and he's the one that messed everything up. Everything was cool he, before he came along and separated. Jeho- and made Je- the yeah, okay. Jehovah was was the you know the rebellious one. It wasn't actually Lucifer. Lucifer is the good guy. Lucifer is the guy who brings the light. He's the light bearer, and it's the Jehovah. God who, when he created Adam, he split the perfect thing. Now, it's interesting because this is, you know, there's another thing too. You know, it's kind of similar to the Promethean fire story, right? Mm -hmm. That Prometheus stole the fire from the gods and gave it to man and then man you know, became knowledgeable and, and something like that. And there's there's all these similar occult stories. And and I think what you have here, and and what what I've been um, striving for for a long time is to kind of come to a conceptualization. I, I understand it in my mind, but a conceptualization that I could articulate. It's eventually to make everything one mm-hmm. and to rid to get rid of diversity 
in all shapes and forms. And and uh, like I was saying, this this Fritoff Capra book, The Turning Point, he kind of talks about that how how the system has been managed through a series of dialectics that they've kind of whittled down to just two to where you have two choices into everything, whether it's in physics, whether it's in evolution theory, whether it's in um, economics, that there's two, you know, there's two schools of thought when it comes to it. And he talks about how in the future, all of these two schools of thought are going to take the bet are going to take all of their elements and merge it into one school of thought. So we're going to have when they merge Coke and Pepsi together, what's going to be pe- how do they get those two names or be hard to merge, <laughs> but I don't know how to do it. <laughs> yeah, we'll see the, the, the interesting thing of it is, is like kind of the way you and I would approach it would be like, how are we going to get the new name out of Coke and Pepsi? And it's not even, it's not even that Coke and Pepsi are going to Coke and Pepsi aren't going to exist. It's go, They're going to merge and then there's going to be something entirely new born out of it. Hmm. You see, so so it it won't even be based off of the old ideas. It's going to be something entirely new. So whereas right now we're going through these transitory phases where we see all of these, um, the birth pangs of this kind of thing. And, And we, you know, I'm not saying this is around the corner anytime soon, but we definitely see the start of this where... You know, peop, you know, another one of Albert Pike's quotes that I don't have handy on me right now, but um, it's it's the one that alludes to where people will become so tired of war that they will that they you know like they're going to make war so that people actually become tired of it and will want will desire peace, right? Mm-hmm. But the purpose of of manufacturing war is is not. I mean, you think about how crazy that is. But see, the peace comes when you get rid of man's aggression. And I, w- I was kind of talking about that with Tim on on the call with fake on fakeologist was that's one of the things that's kind of come out of this. Uh, you know, insertion into the matrix and with this, you know, and the smartphones and all that type of stuff mm-hmm. is, is, uh, this article, uh, that the article that you posted up there on the, on the blog, um, having to do with the I generation, it's called, uh, what's, what's the name of the article has, has the smartphone destroyed a generation. Destroyed a generation. Yeah. So what they're talking about in there is, you know, oh look at all the things that are that are great that have come out of the this generation being addicted to smartphones. Look at how great it is. Uh, we don't have to be scared that they're going to go out drunk driving. We don't have to be scared of them having you know teen pregnancies. Um, you know, there, there's less kids doing going out and drinking and doing drugs. There's less kids and, killing each other less kids killing each other and see 
the the thing that I was pointing out, and you may concur, you may have uh, something else to say beyond that, is that all of those problems were manufactured by the system. They didn't even occur in previous time periods within the 20th century. They didn't have problems with any of that stuff in the 20th century. And all of those problems just started to manifest, oh, yeah, right about the same time as the um, hippie revolution. Right. Okay, so, you know, 1950s, 40s, 30s, they didn't have epidemic problems of of drugs, drinking, and that type of stuff. I'm not saying that stuff didn't exist. I'm saying there wasn't epidemic proportions like there was in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Right. Right. So those problems were manufactured and they were manufactured in a way to get people to be to look at those things as problems. You set up a system wide network to, you know, like job creation, like, oh, we've got to have. Well, there's going to be this foundation that's going to fight teen pregnancy, and then we're going to have this government agency that's going to be devoted to um, putting up propaganda to combat teen pregnancy, right? So you've got this whole system built around each one of those things, right? Well, mothers against drunk driving, and they're getting laws implemented and all that. Yeah, and it's just it's just you know thing after thing after thing, and you're bombarded with it, and. And all the while, as this is taking place, you are also simultaneously being um, conditioned to the technological advance, the the matrix, all, all of those type of things. Because in, a, in like like we've talked about before, there were previous time periods where people would not be into the idea of giving up their privacy. There were people, there were previous time periods where people would not be into the idea of interfacing with a computer 24 hours a day or carrying a computer around in their pocket. Well, it's like back to what I said earlier about knowledge being power. It's like I've talked about this before. I brought this up before several times. Uh, yeah, the idea of this technology and how it's how it's dribbled out. And, it's, and I think this time release as well. Talk about that Charles E. Aldrin that back in the early 1900s uh, article about him inventing the vest pocket telephone. Oh, yeah, you telephone and you talk and you don't need wires and it goes through the radio towers. This is in the early 1900s. Yes. And it's like, well, how did it take so long? It's like he had a working prototype. So how did it take so long for it to get into the – well, see, the timing had to be right. And we had to go through these different phases. And then now after the uh, so-called sexual revolution and all that, it's like, oh, here's the Internet, everybody. Here's unlimited porn for your uh, teenagers now. And it's like, oh, really? It's like, yeah, it's like now it's now it's time for all this. It's like, is it because that's how technology it, it naturally progresses or is it is it something to do with a, uh, a time release program? think the latter you know i don't i, I, I mean that's, it may sound far-fetched but i it's like yeah you got to look at all of this stuff uh i i believe too that there also was um alan watt brings this up and i, I never could find it i said it was on that wendy mesley show in canada and it was um where maybe it wasn't that but it was like uh <laughs> go ahead yeah alan 
No, Nick Nick Baggage. Well, there was Nick Baggage one, but he also references uh, the, uh, the Nick Baggage one where he could where he had a small uh, remote control size device that would uh, like a size of a television remote control that could port sounds into your head, and that was back uh, what in the seventies. And there was also an, uh, a uh, like a essentially an iPhone, and this was back in the fifties, and they were demonstrating it, and they were on a beach, and it was like telecasting through the thing and had a screen on it and had everything all all set up in there this is like yeah in the 50s so it's like uh right they were doing teleconference through it they were teleconferencing through it from a live uh, live uh, remote yeah and and, um yeah didn't you and you just i think recently what like a couple months ago i found that thing about the you know, from what what was it was the ad from the '60s, where <laughs> where they have the they basically have Skype. Remember that? Yes, that's another. Where yeah, they're showing you. Uh, yeah, well, there's all there's a couple of those it's out like there. Through, it's through the tele. Yeah, that's through the telephone and matter of fact, you know, matter of factly telling you. Oh, this is what's coming down the road. Like. Okay, uh, how do you see that far down the road when technology is supposedly all these competing uh, technology companies and they rise on the scene and they compete and then one you know app becomes dominant or something like that? So, so what, 30, 40 years ago, they could see how this would shake out? How yeah, and that, that quote I read, I read multiple times from the Dynamics of Change where – it's like the impact of microelectronics on science, and it's talking about, you know, uh, the the pic the picture frame television where there's going to be flat screen televisions that hang on the wall, and the only problem that we're having currently is he didn't call it pixelation, but that's what he's talking about is pixelation, and he talks about how yeah, that's the only thing that we're doing right now is trying to get this. Um, he called it a mosaic, right? Yeah, he's just referring to like the resolution of what they're able to achieve with the computing power back then. But it was already worked out in principle, and it was, it was just 65. a matter of sixty-five. They already had it worked out in principle. See, that's the thing about this. It's like uh, I think Nick. I don't know. A lot of people know about Nikola Tesla. What yeah, he was in actuality, but I do believe he was a he was a genius. He was a front man as well, I believe. I don't. I don't believe that he. He all these inventions that um, are attributed to him that he actually uh, built from scratch because of all the interrelated things that would have to exist in order for his ideas to work. I don't think that's the way things work in technology. I think it's, it's largely characterized by people building off uh, the previous ideas. But um, anyway. Uh, you listen, like, go read some of the stuff he's talking about. And it's like, yeah, he's forecasting a lot of stuff that's around now because he understood the principle and how it work, and how it works, and how it can be uh, developed into things and that, that you'd see in the future. But they already, yeah, they already had all the principles, underlying principles, already ironed out a long yes. time ago. Yeah, absolutely, and. And so I think with this technology, you know, like I was saying, is you, you get this person in the future who's 
not aggressive and they don't have all of the they're completely divorced from anything previous so it's something kind of relatively new at some point you know whereas kind of like you or myself we're, we're you know products of our generation but we kind of carry similar you know there's still similar things that we carry on from our parents but for a generation that's been born into technology you start to see something completely divorced from previous generations where certain things because of the technology and the immersion in it don't rub off on the children right Mm -hmm. so something is entirely new at that point right because we we were born in the age of technology but the technology you know was also being born at the same time we were mm-hmm. and so right. so we saw my, this come about we knew yeah, the time so, before what it was like and then we could compare and contrast those two ex- well not only that it, it was just our parents had influence on us with attitudes or whatever it is and even though we may have you know especially with our particular generation generation x we have a very cynical kind of approach to our parents generation um and that's a general that's me general speaking in general terms um there is a connection to it you still maintain attributes of that previous generation because you had that human contact but when people go to school now and everything and and then spend their free time um learning and speaking through and creating friendships through technology there's very little personal um there's very little, uh, you know, personal interaction to where you can learn things from people. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's like uh, it, 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 I, I, I often wonder how my children are going to get along in the future, considering they're not being born into the technological world because they're not being exposed to it. But. Um, but. Yeah, I definitely see that happening happening where something entirely new is going to be born out of that. I mean, just think about when those people who were born in 1996, who are, you know, what, they're 21 now, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they're already starting to have children. Those were kids born, you know, 1996 on is is complete is born into the computer world. Yes, born into this into the cell phone world. Right. Right. So so now those people are going to have children and then, you know, so on and so forth. Um, back to now, now, the reason we're talking about this, this does have a connection to what I was talking about with the music is this is an alchemical process because what, what, what I was talking about was something new entirely is being born out of this. Okay. Okay. Now... Mr. Rick Knowles has had some more recent hits with, you know, the ones the ones that I mentioned there were, you know, Madonna and Stevie Nicks and um, Belinda Carlisle. Obviously, those are um, women of a bygone era. 
he wrote one for somebody named Robert Miles. I'm not familiar with this um, performer. And this song is called One and One. So it's not one on one. It's one and one. It's very interesting. The sky isn't always blue. The sun doesn't always shine. It's all right to fall apart sometimes. I am not always you, and you are not always mine. It's all right to fall apart sometimes. After all is said and done, one and one is still one. Hmm. Okay. When we cry, here, here's that reference again. He does that. He does this in all his songs. When we cry, we laugh. So there it is again. Hmm. Same, same. I am verse. Yeah. yeah. I am half, and you are half. Okay. Mm-hmm. I am half, and you are half. The heart isn't always true, and I am not always fine. We all have an angry heart sometimes. After all is said and done, one and one is still one. When we cry, we laugh. I am half, you are half. Look how far we have come, one and one still is. One moon, one star. I love the one that we are. One thread, one line. Let's stand still in time. One moon. Hmm. When, when did this when did this song come out? Um, it looks like it's pretty recent. Who who who, wanna, who sings it? Rob Robert Miles. I never heard of him. No. You might want to look that one up. I'm actually interested in hearing that one. Singularity is already. Yeah. Either that or he got his. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, the Hermes has taken a physical form there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, oh, featuring Maria Naylor. Naylor, Maria Naylor, okay. Yeah. Featuring, oh, she's the vocalist, I assume. Okay. Oh, he must be the, he must be the DJ. The DJ, yeah. Yeah, that's the uh, sort of. A lot of stuff you hear now is like pooch, 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 doo, 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 yeah. and then the singing over the top of it, just really canned synthetic. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, don't like it. I think I think that the name of that group is um, I think it's called um, it's called Hermes and the Post Gender Trio. <laughs> <laughs> Hermes so, and his Hermes and his hermaphrodites. Yeah, the the uh, something yeah, the something. I don't know. Uh, Lana Del Rey has a song by uh, Rick Knowles. It's called "Lust for Life." Now, just think about this: Lana Del Rey is a pop star, and your little girls are going to be singing this song. And this is a song written by. I mean, how old is this guy now? Fifty something. And he's writing songs like this. Yeah, like okay. a guy my age writing songs for girls. Yeah, Lana Del Rey, "Lust for Life." Climb up the H of the Hollywood sign. Yeah, in these stolen moments, the world is mine. Do wop do wop. 
There's nobody here, just us together. Keeping it hot like July forever. Because we're the masters of our own fate. We're the captains of our own souls. There's no way for us to come today because, boy, we're gold. We're gold. Okay, here's the chorus. You ready? Mm-hmm. You ready for the chorus of this? Okay. Take off, take off, take off all your clothes. Take off, take off, take off all your clothes. Take off, take off, take off all your clothes. They say the only they say only the good die young. That just ain't right cuz we're having too much fun tonight. Play a snippet of it. Is that the different song, or is that the one I was playing earlier? I guess that's it. Very just, man, what is the deal? Now, we've talked about music before, of course, many, many times. Uh, we're we're kind of going back and forth on email, kind of doing some 80s reminiscence. And... Uh, I had a song posted on the blog by The Fix. Now, if you listen to that stuff, a lot of that pop from the 70s, 80s, does it not have a completely different character to it than the stuff you're hearing like we just sampled now where you're even the Go-Go's, even the stuff, you know, fairly, re, I mean, it's not that long ago, but it's it's the stuff now has got a very... Uh, what's what's the word? It's 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 uh, homogeneous. This is all one kind of just same feel, same kind of uh, program. It's all mechanized. It's mechanized, and it's all and it's all really indistinguishable. It is. It's me- it's mechanized, and it's very sterile. Homogenized. Um, as- yeah, and you know, as much as people would like to think that um, a lot of this stuff is kind of edgy or against the grain, it's all very sterile. It's all, it's all, um, it's it's all. You know, you listen to music now, and you know, club. I mean, really started in the '90s, uh, electronic music. I think you know personally. Um, if you want my expert opinion, um, and I'm not, I'm not being, um, I'm not trying to be egotistical or anything like that, but you know, I mean, uh, I think there is, there is good possibility to make, make, to make good music, uh, with electronics. Um, but that's not the problem, but as with anything, what has happened is, is, is it's been directed and moved into you know like like anything like anything is it's been um, it's been taken and retooled to basically make the soundtrack to Brave New World for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, they talk about too. They talked about this in 1984. Or it's like um, they would they made the music for the proles on just it's just synthesized. And they also wrote. It also talks about it too. How they the novels were written by computers. The music was written by computers. The the yeah. the stuff that they gave to the proles or the commoners. And um, that's also in that. Uh, what's the guy? Frit is it Fritz Lang? The 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 movie Metropolis. Metropolis. And mm-hmm. yeah. it, that, when was that? That was like from the, when was that released? The 30s. 20s. Right? 20s. No, yeah, the 20s. And uh, so it's like the same same thing. So, yeah, uh, yeah a r- literal robot that becomes like a pop star, and this was in the 20s. Yeah, and that, that theme was uh, revitalized in... I think Beyonce used that theme in one of her uh, videos too. Interestingly enough, where she's the robot becomes the pop star, and I think yeah, that's been that's another motif that's been picked up. Probably not only I th- I'm pretty sure there's been uh, several other uh, references to that. I think Lady Gaga did a th- did a, a mm-hmm. homage to that, and uh, it's kind of in your face like yeah here's yeah. this and then it's like that's what 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 is it at its essence it's this uh mechanized music it's just like we're it's not just like we're old men and you're out of it dude you just you're just too old to get it it's like no it's like listen to the shit it's it's all this homogenized mechanized garbage yes no there's another guy here who's pretty prominent and his name is Billy Steinberg. Billy Steinberg is an American songwriter. He achieved his greatest success in the 1980s with songwriting partner Tom Kelly. Not Tim Kelly. Tom Kelly. Just so we know. No relation. No relation. Together, the two wrote or co-wrote the number one hits Like a Virgin by Madonna. True Colors by Cindy Lauper. Eternal Flame by The Bangles. So Emotional by Whitney Houston. Alone by Heart. I Drove All Night. Um, recorded by various artists. I Touch Myself by Divinals. I'll Stand By You by The Pretenders. And Steinberg, after, after Tom Kelly retired in 1990, Steinberg collaborated with Rick Knowles. Mm. He wrote the song One they co-wrote the song One and One, which is the one we just listened to by Robert Miles. Okay. Uh, he also wrote a song, "Your Give Your Heart a Break by Demi Lovato. Um, okay. Now, he also, you know, he also wrote the song by the Bengals, In Your Room, which, like I was saying, uh, there's a, there's this thing with the rooms. I don't know what's up with the rooms. So he wrote that song in your room, if you remember that one. Um, True Colors was a huge song. Um, you with the sad eyes, don't be don't be discouraged. Oh, I realize it's hard to take courage in a world full of people. You can lose sight of it all, and the darkness inside you can make you feel small. But I see your true colors shining through, and that's why I love you. So don't be afraid to let them show. Your true colors are beautiful like a rainbow. 
Show me a smile then. Don't be unhappy. Can't remember when I saw you laughing. If this world makes you crazy and you've taken all you can bear, you call me up because I'll always be there. True colors are beautiful like a rainbow. This was 1980-something. Yes. Um, of course, I mean, I don't have to read the lyrics to Like a Virgin. Um, you know, once again, we're talking about a, all these different songs with all these references to male, female, as above, so, so below. You know, Like a Virgin is, of course, I've got this book here, Women's Mysteries, Ancient and Modern by M. Esther Harding. I was just reading from all over this book. It's talking about the virgin goddess and her association to the moon. Um, here it is. Chapter nine, the virgin goddess. Um. I'll just read this first little part. Uh, during the long ages of human history, women woman has gradually evolved out of the purely instinctive stage, which is still represented by the dark moon. The tendency to function indis indiscriminately from the animal-like level of her feminine nature has been checked by the conventional laws, which gradually grew up and have been in four, oh man, this is kind of blurry in the light. Have been enforced for so long, regulating especially the behavior of the sexes towards each other. For the for the demonic non-human manifestation of instinct is like a tide, which can easily swamp all human values. Conventional standards were established indeed to prevent such indignations. For when the tide of unconscious instinct rises, it can sweep away all human safeguards and destroy all those values which have been laboriously built up throughout the ages of civilization. Life within the limits of the conventional code has become so mechanical and sterile, however, that many people today are seeking again a direct contact with the source of life which can grow out of a freer relation to instinct. Women in particular have rebelled against the restrictions imposed upon them by the moral requirements of the Victorian age, which have indeed seemed to be especially unfair to them. Owing to the different standards in vogue for men and women, but as soon as a woman releases herself from the purely conventional ways of thinking and acting, this non-human aspect of instinct begins to well up within her. Perhaps for the first time in her life, she finds herself attractive to men, able without herself being involved to attract them and hold their attention by allowing herself to act according to instinct without conscious criticism of what she does and without paying attention to the implication of her words and deeds she becomes the medium of eternal feminine which is irresistible to a large proportion of men The uprush of feminine instinct 
In such a woman may be like a flooding from the unconscious which threatens to swamp all the specifically human values which she formerly seemed to possess when she controlled her life by conventional standards. Okay. Um, I'm not saying I totally agree with Miss uh, Harding's uh, analysis there, but she is an esoteric occultist. So she's speaking that she's uh, speaking from that particular perspective. And, you know, um, so if you take a song that's written by two men and it's given to someone whose name is Madonna, and I've seen an interview with the two guys, you know, about this particular time, about how, you know, how it was just kind of like, like a coincidence kind of lining up. Oh, that's really cool. They're going to, this, this um, singer Madonna is going to do our song that we called Like a Virgin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, as if they they wrote the song and then Madonna decided to do it, and it just kind of okay. So I'm, I'm not I'm not buying that personally. So they're trying to say it wasn't written for her to perform. It was just a song they wrote, and she came across it. Yes, by happenstance. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Even though, even though the you know the connection there would be made. Oh, there's this Madonna. Obviously, Madonna is the Virgin Mary, right? Oh, and and this girl, you know, and this girl Madonna is singing this song like a virgin. The only problem is, is uh, um, and if you want a great explanation as to what the song like a virgin is about, you could watch the movie. Was it Reservoir Dogs? Yes. Yeah, I recall. There was a bit of dialogue where they were discussing that song, yeah. And, and you know, Quentin Tarantino is playing the character who's explaining what Like a Virgin is about. And even though it's an exaggerated thing for the particular scene that they're in, he actually does explain it the correct way. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, He. so what he's basically saying is, is he's saying, he's saying the... Um, that there's this girl who's you know I'll, I'll I won't say it the way that he says it in the movie, but he's saying you're talking about about a very promiscuous woman, mm-hmm. and the way that this person in her life makes her feel during the sex act is so good that she feels like a virgin again. Because the particular gentleman that she's with is uh, equipped to the task. Yes. All right. Yes. Put it as mm-hmm. discreetly as okay. you can. Yeah. Yes. So. So um, that corresponds with with what um, Mrs. Miss Harding here is saying here in her the Virgin Goddess. Uh, thing I just read there is this is a time period of liberation for the woman sexually. And well, to it's put interesting out- in light of what you're talking about earlier, how the moon goddess, like, oh yeah, you you get uh, moon goddess status, and then it's like time for Zeus to give you a raping. That's right. That's the yes. See, and also isn't there? Oh, sorry, isn't there like a uh, reference? Isn't um, in in a cult 
beliefs that Madonna in the Bible uh, or or the Virgin Mary is a representation of the moon goddess. Isn't that also true? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, there's an interesting, that's a whole subject in and of itself. If you look at like, um, some depictions, you know, uh, the idols, and I, pr- I purposely use that word, um, the idols of the Virgin Mary. She's standing on a moon with a star in the middle that looks surprisingly similar to the one that's used in Islam. Mm. Yeah, the crescent and the star. The star. Yeah, so she's standing on that, which is interestingly enough, there are depictions of Isis with the crescent moon with the star on her on her head mm-hmm. okay um, and for some reason interestingly enough so, sometimes the Virgin Mary is called Fatima which that was allegedly one of Muhammad's daughters okay uh, so I I don't know what all of that is I, I've just made those connections myself so yes, there is a connection from you know, um, Mary and Moon God and all all that type of stuff. Wasn't there? That, in, wasn't that in the eighties the vision of I heard, heard it called Fatima, where it's like these all these Catholics uh, among other people saw a vision of the Virgin Mary in the in the sun or in the cloud mm-hmm. sky. Yes. Yeah, there's yeah, there's like I said, there's all sorts of weird stuff, um, and you know, um, when it, when it comes to that stuff, I I don't technically know what to believe, you know, as far just because I haven't delved into that research. A lot of it's very confusing to me personally. Me too. Um, yeah. Because because a lot of a lot of the people who put out the ideas that um you know that you know Jesus is the sun god and Mary's this and this that type of stuff a lot of those people are hucksters i just got to be totally blank about it in fact almost all of them are yeah so, i think so too i've i've so looked lot, into some of that stuff and uh it's it's it seems really sketchy yes um I also have some older books, you know, even books that I, I, I would recommend to people like, you know, uh, Ernest Busenbach's Symbols, Sex, and the Stars. Um, mm-hmm. But I wouldn't fully uh, back every single thing he says in that book. I believe that there are similarities to all the sim- symbolism in religions. Um, but just because something becomes a religion... And idols are made and idols are worshipped and connections are made with previous religions. Does that necessarily make the stories of those religions not real? You see you see what I'm saying? It's like, um, could those stories have been real? I don't know. Mm-hmm. They, they, could, they could be real stories that were um, turned into religions. Um, they could be made up stories. I don't know. But in any case, whatever it is, when it comes to the idols and the symbolism involved with them, that stuff is definitely made up and attached onto whatever. And virgin goddesses have um, 
been around for a long time because you know allegedly ISIS is you know this is a virgin as well, right? The interesting thing though is if you go and you read um, some definitions of virgin, virgin doesn't actually mean today what it meant in the in the ancient mysteries. You know what virgin meant? Mm, in the ancient mysteries, no. Virgin means prostitute. What? Really? No, I yeah. didn't know that. <laughs> so, so a virgin could mean a woman who has a child, or not, you know, or uh, I'm, I'm sorry, a woman who hasn't had sex or had children, but. In other connotations, it could mean a prostitute of the temple, like a temple prostitute. Really? Yeah. Okay. A, like, like a got like a symbol of the goddess. Hmm. Okay. So that's interesting. That this song would be called "Like a Virgin," and then the implication there would be around. A premise, you know, of course, Madonna is the epitome of 20th century promiscuity, at least in symbolic form through the medium of television and rock music. Yeah. Right. You see. So you see what I'm getting at there? Well, it's interesting, too, that uh, during that time period, well, you had Madonna and so she sort of. It, 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 now you have multiple female pop singers that are uh, sort of prominent where that around that era, there wasn't like this, um, you, you know, Madonna was the sort of reigning, I guess, queen of pop or what have you. And then you had sort of Michael Jackson around the same time. And, and, that, and, the, and they sort of like dominated the pop music scene. We're, we're in is now you have all these different ones mm -hmm. that will yeah it, it's, yeah, yeah that, that's definitely true and and it's interesting as well as if you kind of look at Madonna's um, uh, pun intended body of work um, what you're going to see is that most of like her her big hit songs, they have songs that have like a double meaning to them, like the, in the titles that kind of correspond with her name. Mm -hmm. So like a prayer, material girl. Yeah. Right. Um, and as you move further and deeper down into her career, you know, she put out that movie truth or dare. And she had the song justify my love with a, like an X-rated video and all, all sorts of things. And um, Madonna herself is actually into Kabbalah. Yeah. Admitted, admittedly. So she's, you know, and I mean, what, in that last, you know, whenever it was, she was at the Super Bowl and she's dancing around with goat horns on her head and um, they're basically doing a Dionysian ritual, cloaked, you know, uh, cloaked as a uh, dance performance 
that was actually nothing new because what you can do is you can go back and look at her stuff from the 1990s mm-hmm. and all of her dance sequences they um how do you, how do you put this they the dance moves are are either they're either one of two things they're these cabalistic like dances mhm okay or or their dances that revolve around um like indian like kind of uh like kali worship type dances i know it sounds bizarre but yeah right yeah that's another goddess figure that gets referenced a lot is kali which is yeah. uh, associated with um destruction which is interesting it's yeah. It's it, Kali is Kali's kind of kind of well, like like you were saying, all the gods and goddesses have like similar attributes and. So what you're looking Kali's at is kind of a the goddess uh, of the cycle. Yeah, there's a well. There's a it was the Kali Yuga is associated with the. According to what, from what I understand about the Hindu belief system, is that the Kali Yuga is a time is a period of time when uh, it's sort of like evil rules, bad people are in control, and it's just a yeah. period of bad bad times. Yeah. she's she's the you know Shiva is that, that's the thing like I was saying about these gods and all this type of stuff where where the there's these separations, not really uh, separations. It's the it's it's the same thing. It's like um, it's like with the Egyptology too. You know, um, you get all these different names for the sun god, but sometimes the sun god it has a different name for just depending on the different time of day it is, right? Mm-hmm. And so. Later, later on, maybe someone took those names and they uh, uh, attributed it to the sun god as the name of the god itself. But in an earlier time period, it was actually just a name for the god for that particular time of day. And and that would be similar to like the cycle of the system that we live in, whereas like Shiva is the god of you know Shiva is the goddess of death. But mm-hmm. Kali is also the god of death. They're kind of hermaphroditic, and is that kind like of like you said, Nike and Mercury. Or- Nike and Mercury, and 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 there's these periods of the cycle that are either anticipated or manipulated to be brought about, mm-hmm. and so sometimes. Kali, you know, the thing of it is, is the it, it just depends on the way that you look at it. Um, Kali is the goddess of destruction, the god of destruction, but at the same time, he's the god of life because by bringing about destruction, it brings in the new age. Yeah. You see, so... Right. It, it's a bizarre, you know, if you're a normal person... Mm-hmm. A normal functioning person, you don't believe in all of this mumbo jumbo like me or you. No, I don't believe in it. Yeah, yeah. So, so 
there's people out there who believe in this, like, oh yeah, it's a good thing we have destruction because that you know it's a good thing that the um, that the plane you know that the twin towers were brought down because we got to build this new tower. Yeah. Right. Brand spanking new tower. Right. So so out of out of destruction comes life. That's the that's the way certain things um, are, are viewed at in the occult is, you know, they, they view it as, well, the only way you can get life is through death. Well, there's all kinds of symbolism in the uh, in the WDC complex. There was previous to this destruction, and then afterwards there's all this symbolism, and we've talked about that before. Other Other people have done a better job of kind of going into all the particulars about that. But then, um, it, it, yeah, and it's is uh, a lot of uh, Islamic influence in the original WTC complex, and then you know a- afterward you have the minaret at the top of the One World Trade Tower. The one, what is it? The one, the, the, what do they call it now? The uh, One World Trade. Is it One World Trade? Is it at Liberty Tower or some some? Something like that. Freedom Tower? Freedom Tower. Oh, man, yeah. And, uh, yeah, then they have the, uh, the, the tide, the, the, the pools of the, of the, the water falling into the, uh, big, uh, square. Cubes. uh, Yeah, cubes that are like the, um, the, the architect, the, the architect that designed the original WDC said it was it was uh, modeled after Mecca. Well, in Mecca, you have the uh, the the black cube stone that everybody marches around when they do the pilgrimage. But at the WDC site, yeah, the Kaaba, and then at the WDC site, you have this inverted Kaaba in the in, in the in the. You, you think the it's weird. You think it's weird if you took if you that if you take the god of of Islam is Allah, right? Okay. And then you right. take and you take the cube and the way they say cube in Islam is Kaaba Allah, Kaaba Allah, Kabbalah. Ah, interesting. Right. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, and uh <laughs> so then you see this uh, the mel you know, the yeah, the fusion or the melding of the uh yeah the twins into one of course that's uh goes goes right in line with what we're talking about yeah but you know talking about madonna and like okay so what about it so she's a pop star and it's like she's 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 going to all, all these esoteric references in her lyrics and some of them are pretty glaringly obvious i think i mean it's just too hard to deny but what you're looking at is alchemy. You're looking at alchemy performed on the masses in the form of her influence on these young minds. How that shapes the uh, shapes the future generations and we're seeing all this playing out right in front of our face. And it, it's um it, it has real influence, real impact, real outcomes on the society, on culture, you know. So yeah, this is this is alchemy you're looking at. Absolutely. Yes, and and like I was saying, you know, mainly the point I wanted to bring up is that you know these pop stars are are symbols. They're interchangeable, and they're there to 
put out the 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 script for the time period that they're in and they have their songs written by um these guys now now i'm not going to get into i'm not going to do any you know read any more lyrics i think i've made the point with the lyrics here but if you take a song like like um billy steinberg he wrote here he wrote a song by the bank that the bangles made popular is called eternal flame <laughs> now i don't even have to read the lyrics but you can go into you know the occult and just look up you can go into a a sim- symbol diction you know a dictionary of symbols and look up what an eternal flame is symbolizes right mm-hmm. so they light a torch at the olympics and it doesn't the flame doesn't get put out the entire duration of the olympics right right they have an eternal flame lit symbolically at the uh grave of john f kennedy where he's allegedly buried Right. Right. The eternal flame is always been a symbol um, in mysteries. When he dies so for just, real, will they put the flame out? <laughs> <laughs> now, the the thing of it is, is um, when you get into um, you can look on books and fraternal orders, just you know, not even secret societies, but just your fraternal orders, um, or sometimes your publishers, why this publisher of, um, why this publisher right here of Miss Esther Harding's Women's Mysteries books is Harper Collins Books, and it's got an eternal flame right next to it. Mm-hmm. Yep. You, you can look on, like I said, fraternal orders will have an eternal flame, like, you know, whatever it is, you know, don't quote me on it, but, you know, like Pi Beta Kappa, and it'll have, in the background, it'll have a, um, an eternal Olympic flame behind it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's, it's a symbol of knowledge a lot of times because knowledge is associated with light. It's associated with fire, um, the Promethean fire. Well, in the Olympic ceremony, don't they pass it along to person to person to person? In That's also ceremony? symbolic. How far do they take it? I forget. Or do they start? They start somewhere and they end up at the... They go through the whole country. Whatever country that the Olympics are being hosted, they go across the whole entire country to the yeah. Olympic site. Okay. I remember in 1984... The Olympic torch passed through my my neighborhood, wherever it was, on its way to Los Angeles, and I think I have a photograph of it somewhere with a guy running down the middle of the street, and it's all streets all roped off so this guy can run with the torch, so they can. That's probably go. why they'll never host it in Texas. It'd take too damn long to get this shit started. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, that's probably, I mean, well, Texas is, you know, anti-New World Order. They're not going to go along with the New World Order, Chris. <laughs> what did you say? It's the, it's the place, the placemat against uh, <laughs> yeah. and your Jones impression. Yeah. That's right. It was, it was laid out a long time ago as to be the, the placemat in the anti-New World Order uh, by, the Rosicrucian, by the Rosicrucians at the Alamo. 
<laughs> what what was he talking about? But he knew, he obviously knows something I don't. Um, um, let me get to some stuff here. Um, where I'm talk, what I want to continue with. This is in. This is going to relate to what we're talking about, but on a higher level. I, you know, I don't think I don't think I'm doing enough, a good enough job of um, conveying what I'm trying to say here. Um, but let me. Here's here's an example of what uh, Capra is talking about in the turning point and uh, new visions of reality. And this is what I'm saying about how you've got a dialectic set up by the system. And there's kind of two accepted points of view on something. And he's talking about how in the future you're not going to need the two points of view. You're going to have the two points of view merge to make one point of view, and that's what everybody's going to believe in. Mm. Okay. But that simul- simultaneously throughout different parts of life, he, it's kind of hard, like I said, it's kind of hard for me to explain. Like whether it be economics or physics or uh, whatever it is, that in the future you will not see any distinction between them. They will be a unified field. Okay. <laughs> Okay, let me let me give you an example here. There are a number of fundamental differences, and and I'm bringing this up because you and I have had private conversations about uh, this re- kind of recently. There are a number of fundamental differences between the new systems theory of evolution and the classical neo-Darwinian theory. The classical theory sees evolution as moving towards an equilibrium state, with organisms adapting themselves ever more perfectly to their environment. According to the system's view, evolution operates far from equilibrium and unfolds through an interplay of adaptation and creation. Moreover, the system's theory takes into account that environment is itself a living system capable of adaptation and evolution. Thus, the focus shifts from the evolution of an organism to the co-evolution of organism plus environment. The consideration of such mutual adaptation and coevolution was neglected in the classical view, which has tended to con- concentrate on linear se- sequential processes and to ignore transactional phenomena that are mutually conditioning and going on simultaneously. Jacques Menard saw evolution as a strict sequence of chance and necessity, the chance of random mutations and the necessity of survival. Chance and necessity are also aspects of the new theory, but their roles are quite different. The internal reinforcement of fluctuations and the way the system reaches a critical point may occur at random and are unpredictable, but once such a critical point has been reached, the system is forced to evolve into a new structure. Okay, now at this point, I want to make, I want to point this out. This is where it becomes evident that he's not just 
solely talking that, that this is actually veiled. He's talking about life in general. He's talking about culture. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is how you, when, when you're reading these books, this is what you look for. Okay. He's not just talking about evolution theory here. He's talking about everything. Okay. Okay. But once, let me, so, but once such a critical point has been reached, the system is forced to evolve into a new structure. Thus, chance and necessity come into place simultaneously and act as complementary principles. Moreover, the unpredictability of the whole process is not limited to the origin of the instability. When a system becomes unstable, there are always at least two new possible structures into which it can evolve. The further the system has moved from equilibrium, the more options will be available. Which of these options is chosen is impossible to predict. There is a true freedom of choice. As the system approaches the critical point, it decides itself which way to go. And this decision will determine its evolution. The totality of possible evolutionary pathways may be imagined as a multi-forked graph with free decisions at each branching point. This picture shows that evolution is basically open and indeterminate. There is no goal in it or purpose, and yet there is a recognizable pattern of development. The details of this pattern are unpredictable because of the autonomy of living systems and they possess in their evolution as in other aspects of their organization. In the system's view of process, evolution is not dominated by blind chance, but represents an unfolding of order and complexity that can be seen as a kind of learning process involving autonomy and freedom of choice. Since the days of Darwin, scientific and religious views about evolution have often been in opposition. The latter assuming that there was some general blueprint designed by a divine creator, the former reducing evolution to cosmic game of dice. The new systems theory accepts neither of these views. <laughs> although it does although it does not deny spirituality and can even be used to formulate the concept of a deity as we shall see below it does not allow for the pre-established evolutionary plan evolution is an ongoing and open adventure that continually creates its own purpose in a process whose detailed outcome is inherently unpredictable Nevertheless, the general pattern of evolution can be recognized and is quite comprehensible. Its characteristics include the progressive increase of complexity, coordination, and interdependence, the, in, the integration of individuals into multi-leveled systems, and the continual refinement of certain functions and patterns of behavior. As Irving Laszlo sums it up, there is a progression from multiplicity and chaos to oneness and order. Hmm. What he what he's talking about there, like I said, that's just one aspect. And he go like I said, he goes through all different 
things from physics to economics to um, other things and, and talks about how the old dialectics will be done away with and a new thing will be formed out of those old dialectics just like we've talked about plenty of times before the third way right mm-hmm. and right. um like you you were you were just about to say something about how um drugs play a part in this as well well i was just mentioning how uh, if you get you're going to talk to people who are into the drug culture or hippies or new agers they're always kind of uh it, Joe Rogan will say this, you know, you get you go on a trip, man, and you realize like everything is like one or all one. So, you know, why all this fighting? You know, why can't we all just get along? Because we're all one. You hear that a lot. Yes, you do. And see, you know, this is where a lot of stuff gets bogged down and where, you know, I have to make the distinction. It's like you know, someone like Joe Rogan or, you know, other kind of libertarian types, they, you know, say, okay, no nations, no borders, um, free trade, free market, right? We got to be able to, um, and all that hunky-dory type of stuff. The thing of it is, is where I would differ with these people is, these people still look for that type of stuff to be regulated and to um, exist within this this system. They believe in the system that we live in. They believe in it, and they believe that through that system they will obtain no nations, no borders, you know, um, total freedom. But... All it is, is, is if that's what the system wants and, and that's what it promotes, which that's what it does promote. It promotes, you know, here, here's the thing. Nations are a product of the system and so is no nations. Yes, it's, it's sort of, uh, yeah, there's artificial construct. So it's, um, it, it, it's going to be utilized for whatever end goal. I mean, yeah, you go into like, well, who set up Iraq? Who set up Iran? Who, what, what are all those so-called nations and why are they so problematic in today's world? Like what, well, then what do you go back to colonial uh, era, Britain, colonialism? Yeah. British empire set all that up. The The early days of British intelligence. Yes. And uh, so what happened, you know, like what, so they, they went rogue, I guess. That's the thing you hear a lot. Well, one thing that you'll, you'll realize if you study the history is that they set them up to be, to be the boogeyman. Exactly. Yeah. That's what they, because that's a prerequisite of uh, our, our society, our cultures that, you know, you always have this uh, boogeyman somewhere. Yeah, so it and and so once you get inside of the system, it, there's ebb, ebb and flow and different time periods, like we we're talking about with you know something like Kali Yuga or whatever. Is there's these 
manipulated and manufactured cycles that you go through here. And these, uh, so there's going to be a time period where, like we were talking about before, where people are going to be sick of war and they're going to be sick of all the problems and they're going to say, listen, we don't want any nations, we don't want any borders. And that's that's what you're being pushed towards anyways. And even if you think something like that is good, like you say, well, I don't believe in nations anyways. I don't believe in America. I don't believe in you know, this, that, or the other thing. I don't believe in the white race. I don't believe in this, you know, in, in, in all of these differences and all that type of stuff, which, you know, some of that stuff may be totally true. It's being meant, it's being pushed in a way, you know, even though you may agree with something, it's the, the way that it's going to be used is to manipulate masses of people into something that is not good. So whereas like the individual might correctly believe something to be good when you're manipulate masses of people into, into Matt, you know, kind of mass consciousness, mm. some, something can be easily used to sway masses of people who are more prone to, especially through mass communication and mass culture, are more prone to being, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like, if I show you something, it's like we've talked about this before. It's like you bring some natives, some shovels, right? Mm-hmm. You say, look how good these shovels are. And the natives say, man, these shovels are great. What else do you got? And you say, well, I've got this Walmart I want to build here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. it's like wow that's you know it's like wow this guy's giving us these shovels he's probably got some really other good stuff yes actually I do I've got this huge mega store I want to build on your island Mm -hmm. and I'll give you guys all jobs yeah then you could buy shovels exactly (laughs) so so you know like I said is there anything wrong with shovels no but Sometimes shovels lead to working at Walmart. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, it's like, uh, and two, it's kind of this, um, you know, we're talking about all this stuff and looking at how, oh, culture is created, developed, certain ideas are put in our heads our, our collective heads as you know something that is um here's the thing too it's like if you uh, if you have an understanding of what's going on it's not going to have the effect it's not going to have the desired end result I, or else i wouldn't talk about this stuff i don't think you would either john right i mean there's some kind of objective in 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 discussing this stuff well, I mean, it's it, not that not that there's some kind of like, um, oh, well, there's going to be some revolution in thought that's going to upset the current system. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about if you can if you can accomplish that in your own life, that's something, you know, so it's, it's worthwhile to examine this stuff. And the more understanding you get of it, and I don't even advocate going into uh, the deeply into the occult or anything like that, because I don't. 
um, but I, I, I just to, to be familiar with it enough to to, to recognize that um, there are these belief systems, these religions that exist below the surface that are influencing things that you're seeing in front of your face. Absolutely. That's the point. Yeah, it's not, it's not that, oh, you have to become an, a, an adept or something in, into the, or initiated into these things. It's not, it's not, a, that's, that's not my objective. I don't, I don't, I don't care to um, go and search out all these, all of these, because there's so much of it out there, too. I mean, it's like, and then what are you going to believe, too? That's another thing. Right? Well, what source is going to be a reputable source on any, anything like that? So it's, it's not even really necessary to go into all of it. It's just to recognize that, okay, here's this belief system. And what, you know, what I have looked into, it's like uh, I've read some uh, Manly P. Hall. I've read some other stuff. It's like, man, this is gobbledy, gook. Now, somebody may say, well, well, Chris, you're, you're not spiritually enlightened enough to understand it. That's why you think it's gobbledygook. It's like, no, it's because it's gobbledygook. I think that there is a uh, – here's another thing that I, I, I firmly believe is that there is an in- inherent ability within all of us to sort things out, to have what was referred to as – which is you don't hear a lot anymore – is common sense – sort of you have this sort of innate ability and, and it really actually when you when you stop and think about it it actually has to be that, that way because how else would you be able to be expected to survive in any kind of world either a natural system or a unnatural system but then you come to the realization that there is uh, there there is an objective to to uh, w- work that out of you systematically to where you where you um, you don't have you don't place the value on that ability that innate ability, and you and you and you um, uh, outsource it to the these perceived authorities that are put in front of you, and that's really like what we're, we're dealing with on a on a regular basis. It's like um, so we just got past the anniversary of nine eleven. Do the majority of people pretty much believe the official story to one degree or another? Yes. They do. Is the official story absolutely absurd? Yes, it's absolutely absurd. No rational person should accept what they were presented on I-11. The reason why they do is because their belief in authority and their need for this perceived authority, which is artificially created. It's a, it's a, it's a co- co-opting of your natural uh, desire to have a... Uh, a sort of figure, a sort of uh, um, a, a mentor or a guide or a chief or a chieftain or so it's, it's like a it's it's an instinctual thing that's been co-opted and then played upon through through this um, alchemical process. I guess we're we're being processed through all these. You know, we're taking th- we're taken through the public school system, and it's like uh, we're where this belief in these authorities are constantly reinforced. So then you get around to where we're at in, you know, in this era and uh, or, you know, relatively recently, the 9-11 event where they show you a cartoon and tell you it's real and you believe it because an authority told you to believe it. And it's like, well, it defies every known law of physics or anybody that has any common sense that a a uh a material uh, w- w- some 
composite material on the nose cone is going to come out intact on the other side, which is they actually do show you that. That people believe it happened, and it's absurd. It's absurdist. It's cartoons. And I don't care what anybody says. You don't have to be a scientist to figure that out. But it's like um, it, it, it's just it, it's just indicative of the state of humanity right now. And it and it was a it was a process to get us to this point. And uh, even to this day, how many years after the fact do people not even bring that up? Now you'll hear Building Seven brought up, which is another absurdity, and uh, rightfully so. But um, yeah, the cartoon planes, you know, literally cutting out a hole in the side, just like a like a the Roadrunner going through the canyon wall. It's like um, it, it's, it's still believed in as if it, you know, it's unquestionable. But uh, yeah, that's so. I guess what I'm saying, what I'm trying to say, is like trying to examine this process. Like, what what gets human beings to this the state where they they can accept absurdities and and cling to them? And it's like, well, there's some kind of intrinsic need, and there's this de- desire for this authority. And then they're looking to this abstraction that's been created for for this uh, guidance, and they're and they're being um, uh, subjected to this to these rituals that are trans collectively transforming people into something that is not natural, not normal, and not conducive to any kind of um, life that is worth even living. I mean, I'm looking at this stuff that's coming down the road and the stuff that's already developed in my lifetime. It's like, man, it's getting so extreme. After reading that article about our smartphone, has smartphones destroyed a generation? I said, man, if even half this stuff is true, then I guess the, the definitive answer is yes. And it's like, this is something that it would be uh, a health emide- uh, epidemic that should er- everybody should be f- totally freaking out about. But the only reason why they're not freaking out about it is because they're not told to, to freak out about it. And it's like, my God, what is going on? This is, this is you know, when we talked about this earlier, it said, well, you know, teenagers aren't killing each other. It's just because they're killing themselves. They're going into s- despair over how their life is shaping up. And it's like, well, I don't do anything but spend time on this damn phone. And it's like they don't have any real connections. They don't have any real, anything real in their life. And it's like, well, it's, what, what, what is the point? At the same time, being bombarded with this media, I was just looking at something the other day. It was some cartoon, uh, Rick and Morty, I think that's the name of it. And it's like, this is, a, this is the multiverse theory and they're putting this out as a belief system in the cartoon form because that's how people get get inculcated into this stuff is by way of this uh, pop culture. And it's like, okay, so they're going to these absurdist scenarios and stuff in a cartoon form because that's, I guess that's the best format. But at the same time, it's instructive. So it's, it's always pushing this idea. Science has lent these things as absurd as they are. And we're, of course, we're parodying them and we're showing you in a cartoon. But at the same time, they're they're making these associations with oh, well, this is science and this actually has some validity, but it's 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 absolutely absurdist. So this is 
I think this ties into 9-11 in this era of like where, um, you know, we have social, the social justice warrior, cultural Marxist stuff where it's like, oh, there's no male and female anymore. All this absurd claptrap that's coming out of people's mouths that doesn't make any sense. It's like it's it's uh, it's very troubling, dude. I mean, I sometimes I just I'm looking at this stuff. and I said, you got to be kidding me. This is this. This is something that people are taking seriously. They're taking seriously this multiverse series. So it's like not only are you insignificant on the speck of dust out in outer space, there's also unlimited or infinite multiverses where there's infinite different possible versions of the earth too on top of all that and so not 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 only insignificant on a cosmic level but on interdimensional level and it's like okay this is just the 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 religion of dis, absolute despair if the you know kids get their heads full of this stuff and there's nothing to back it up there's absolutely no it's this theoretical just garbage that's being uh pumped into into kids heads and it's like well this is this is uh well i, I talked i referred to it earlier is a culture of extinction it's like the extinction culture man it's like it, it's insane well, and it's like uh yeah yeah to go along with what you're saying but also to say actually uh i'm gonna read from two more things before we can uh wrap this up as they uh say in the masonic lodge um there's going to be some things that are going to alleviate a lot of these problems, though. Um, so, uh, right here on page 385 of uh, The Turning Point by Fritoff Capra, he says, The most powerful way of activating experiences from all levels of the unconscious and historically one of the oldest forms of experiential therapy is the therapeutic use of psychedelics. Therapeutic use. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, the basic principles and practical aspects of psychedelic therapy have been set forth in great t- detail by Stanislav Grof. In view of future applications, once the legal restrictions caused by widespread misuse of LSD are relaxed, in addition, a number of neo-Reichian approaches can be used to energize the organism in similar ways through physical manipulations Um, so yeah psychedelic therapy um, is uh, practical uh, in this next part and from chapter 8 of Aaron Franz's book Revolve Man's Scientific Rise to Godhood the title of the chapter is Post-Genderism And he says here, one of the strangest trends within transhumanism is that of post-genderism, which is the idea of transcending gender itself. Post-genderism is yet another ism which buddies up with transhumanism. Post-genderists seek to go beyond the confines of their own male or female-specific bodies. Becoming post-gender, one could merge with both female and male traits to achieve gender singularity within the self. Another way to go could be to ignore both male and female to end up as some unknown form of neuter. 
By upgrading bodies and minds with various transhuman technologies or surgeries, post-gender post-humans could become something beyond male or female. This sounds bizarre or even ridiculous to most people who stumble upon the subject, but it should be understood that transhumanists are completely serious about it. They make frequent references to it, both overtly and covertly. Post-genderism is an important part of their project. There are, of course, many technical problems when it comes to post-genderism. Questions about reproduction, biology, and relationships obviously pop up, all of which are more or less brushed aside by hardcore transhumanists. Anyone who would bother even to ask such trivialities obviously doesn't get it. Hey, man, we said we are... We wanted to go totally post-human. What part of the word total didn't you understand? They mean it, so believe it. As for all of those pesky technical questions, they do have answers if you really need them. Remember that everything is to be reshaped by scientific logic and reason. Reproduction is to be done in a lab with the assistance of artificial wombs. This is assuming that post-humans don't opt for silicone bodies because the male and female relationship would no longer be of any particular necessity, the nature of sexuality would be completely psychological. Hmm. Sexuality could be done away with totally in favor of new forms of bliss. In a de-sexed environment, acquisition of pleasure becomes another practical engineering task. Happiness will be designed as yet another improvement. So don't you worry because there will be no shortage of pleasure in the post-human world. The transhumanists are sure to make this point clear. What was this book out of? Aaron Franz's book. The Revolve? Yeah. Chapter 8. Chapter 8 of Revolve called Post-Genderism. So. Well, I mean, so, that's what you're so, seeing so, right now. And he wrote this. Aaron was uh, on top of this stuff a while back before all this stuff you're seeing now going just full. Wacky. Yeah, I think he wrote. Yeah. I think he wrote this in 2013. If I remember, <clears throat> is this 2012? 2012. Yeah, that's, that's uh, yeah, that's really. I always like their. Always like their stuff. I wish he would do more of it. But yeah, he um, um, I think with what with what we presented here is you you see the manipulation in the culture and the music we I presented the case there you've got these guys behind the scenes who write the songs for these pop stars they're obviously in the know of the hermetic language I gave you the Albert Pike example of where he talks about what the actual great work revolves around and it revolves around Hermes who is a Herm Aphrodite. Okay. Mm-hmm. Herm Aphrodite yeah. means the merger of Aphrodite, the goddess, with the god Hermes. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's Herm Aphrodite. Okay. 
the women, the women's stuff, the, the women's movement. You've got this women's mysteries book, M. Esther Harding. This is a, you know, this is a book like they give you in women's studies, mm-hmm. and it te- teaches you all about um, the the mystery schools and the women and you know, uh, the loosening up of the morals and how that was a normal thing back in the old days because back in, you know, the Greeks had the virgin prostitutes in the temple and the morals were loose back then, so it's cool to have it now in the in the 60s when this book was, you know, propagated in schools and stuff for li- women's lib. Then you got Fritoff Capra here. He's buddy, you know, he's buddies with Carl Rogers and Artie Lang and Gregory Bateson and all the rest of these guys. And here he is telling you in his book from a scientific perspective that all of this oneness and order out of chaos is all going to come around and it's all based in scientific reality. And it's all, uh, you know, a merger of classical Darwin and neo-Darwinian systems theory. Right, systems theory. Okay, yeah, it's it's evol it's a and and all of this is part of evolution and um and it's it's stuff that you know like we've touched on before. It's you know um um you know you get you get into the postmodernism and like we you and I were talking about briefly with the. Thaddeus Russell interview with Joe Rogan, which was quite laughable, is you get into the libertarian postmodernism gone wild where, you know, pretty much anything goes. And he's basically saying this, and I think he's just like, kind of, you know, kind of an idiot libertarian true believer. It's Thaddeus Russell, right? Yeah. And th- this is the point where you get to where it's like, yeah, well, there is, you know, what is a male? What is a female? You know, you start asking these questions, right? <laughs> where it's like... Yeah, and then Joe Rogan's pointing out, okay, well, you're referring to males as males and females, so, you're, so you know. But then it's like, well, there's ladyboys in Thailand. It's like, okay, so there's this exception, but then, like, what... Or an aberration or something like that. So what, what about it? There's aberrations to just about any thing that you can find there's some kind of like aberration or departure from what would be uh the 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 true ideal which would be the male which would be an intact female and intact male and then you know like you saying earlier which i believe too it's like they're complementary units they're complementary and they it, it and it, and it makes sense from any perspective that things would be arranged that way where you have you know, the, the the two people, you know, being able to procreate, and then they have different elements of their uh, biological makeup and everything that accommodates that. But then you have two separate individuals that uh, are two bodies that could do two different tasks at the same time, whatever. It's like it just makes total sense. And it's worked and has always worked throughout as far back as history goes. And um, but now you got these nutcases that are saying, oh, well, none of that really makes any difference or matters. Well, in your artificial constructed bubble, no, but in the in, in actual reality, yes. 
So it's like it's, it's like nothing. None of this would be uh, viable whatsoever if we were closer to any kind of a natural state. Since we live in this thing called civilization, where people are shielded from the their consequences of their actions, especially people that are the elite or people that are uh, ha- have money. Uh, the more money you have, the more separated you can be from the consequences of your action to some degree. I'm not saying, you know, psycho, you know psychological effect is not because they, they see all these rich people are miserable and they're on psychotropic drugs and everything. But uh, well, no, yeah. another thing, too, is like through this program, like we were saying with um, with these songs, you know, going back to that Disney song, I was just thinking about this right now as you were talking. You know, when you wish upon a star, it makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires can come to you. <laughs> Is that a Disney uh, theme song or something? Yes. When you wish upon a star, it makes no difference who you are. Right? I'm not going to sing it, but... um. Your dreams yeah, it's, it's from it's from It's from Pinocchio. Ah, yeah. It's from Pinocchio. Remember, he wishes on a star to become a real boy. Right. Which, I mean, if that isn't a freaking bizarre movie, I don't know what is. But um, it's supposed to be really, yeah, esoteric yeah. or whatever. Very. <clears throat> um, but but anyways, um, but anyways, that's kind of the basis, you know. Th- that's kind of the basis of magic and occultism in and of itself. And like I was talking about with these songs, a lot of these songs have the same kind of symbolism in it that ties in, you know, elements of the natural world, but it ties it into dreams and to making dreams come true. And um, the word dream, we, we've talked about this before, um, might have to do a whole... You know, maybe like a one-hour talk on just the word dream in song. Mm-hmm. And how it pops up all over music, even in today's world. It's just, you can't get rid of the word dream. It's just always there. And like I said, like it's saying, anything your heart desires can come to you. Here's the problem, though. That's fantasy land, just like Disneyland. Yeah, it works in Disneyland, in the park, but not outside of that artificial construct. Just speaking from my own perspective, uh, it's never, you know, as far as I know, it's never happened to me because um, any or, you know, if you want to put it into like the kind of personal context, everything my heart desired, it hasn't actually come to me. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't think it's going to either. Um, I'm not being pessimistic about that. I'm just saying in a general sense, it's like if you're, you, you know, especially if you're thinking about it in the kind of childlike way that people tend to, um, you know, the childlike way that, that the public sees it through the scope of like media, like you got the person, you know, sitting out here in like myself, who's sitting out here in the outskirts of Los Angeles, um, or even someone like yourself sitting, you know, out in the middle of Oklahoma, 
and you're watching the TV and you're hoping that one day you're going to be a rock star just like Katy Perry. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen, most likely. Probably not. So you're going to go into the NBA and get a multi-million dollar contract, John, you think? If you're a Freemason like Shaquille O'Neal. Yeah. No. Well, uh, I'm, I'm not. And, and see, that that's another thing where, where things start getting muddy, too, is like there are people out there with actual talent. You know, someone like yeah. Shaquille O'Neal can, can obviously play basketball. Um, and I guess the real question at a certain point is, you know, uh, so, you know, for any anybody out there who likes jazz music or something, someone somebody like Louis Armstrong or Duke Ellington were obviously musical, ha- had some form of musical genius when it came to playing their instruments. Mm-hmm. Sure, but they were also but they were also Freemasons. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so you have to ask yourself: At what point, where does the fame come from? Because they're so talented, or because they're well connected? You know, or does the does the does the invitation to join the order come after you've established yourself as being talented? Oh, well, it's like well, I was watching this YouTube video. This guy was going into the oh, how do you break into the music industry and become famous or become successful? And uh, so it, it was a guy. I, I, I surmise he I, I'm guessing like he uh, w- knew what he was talking about I don't I don't know this guy, guy with the YouTube channel instructional videos and stuff and he's saying well you know it's a it's a combination of uh, talent you got to be talented or or not even talented in some cases but it's like all has to do with like being at the right place at the right time and uh, so it, older guy about my age and had been in the music around the music industry for i don't know how many years 40 years or something but 30 something years or whatever and uh so based on his observations that's what he was saying so like well you know you you can be talented you can be very talented and you're and doesn't mean you're going to be successful it's just a matter of you know all the stars aligning or whatever it's like, well, yeah, there's definitely that element, but then how is being connected, how does it play into that too? So, um, yeah, so it's it's both. You know, you're talented and you're connected. Or or maybe in a lot of cases where you're not so talented but connected. But I think that's it's important primarily to be connected. It's just like anything yes. else. Yeah, because you could be, you know, very talented at what you do, but you – you know, it, it's always funny to me. There's like certain, there's like certain things. Um. Uh, about the culture that we've grown up with, you know, mainly. Um, for the most part, um. Uh, what's the refined? You know, it's this method kind of became refined in the 20th century because that's where it actually comes out of it's 20th century entertainment. And it's funny, like somebody like the guy who um, who I, I used to take guitar lessons from, and he's pretty well known, 
you know, in certain circles, for he's a guitar maker. Uh, his name's T.K. Smith, and you can go on YouTube and find his videos of him playing guitar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen his, um, seen his uh, sure. guitars and stuff. Yeah, right, and okay. and he's, a, you know, he's a very good guitar player. Um, but he's very quiet and he's very reserved and he's very kind of um, humble about his playing. Mm-hmm. He's not very egotistical and he doesn't go out of the way out of his way to you know brag or, or anything like that. Um, and by by the modern you know way things are, he would not be star material. Yeah. Okay. Right. Just based off of raw talent, he wouldn't actually work out because, you know, he may have the talent, but he doesn't have the star quality to go along with the talent. You see? Mm-hmm. So it's definitely not all about talent, even if no. it, even if they claim it, because there's somebody who could ha- have absolutely no talent, but they have whatever that quote unquote star quality is. And the star quality in and of itself is um, is not some. It, it's um, what you could. It, it's fluid because they could say someone, you know, oh, this person had the star quality, but the star quality manifested itself in their looks. Oh, mm-hmm. but this person doesn't have the looks, but they've got the capability to do this, or they got the capability to to do that. So there is no real star quality. No. It's just what somebody whose job it is to scout talent decides that there's some, quote unquote, something about this person. And then they tell the public that there's this something about them. And it may be true that this person has some sort of talent, but the problem with mass culture is mass culture expects to be dictated to by an expert exactly it's expect it's expected to be told in mass so you know let's just say um uh who who's um uh, i'm just trying to think of somebody who's not so photogenic but who's an actor and actress um uh (laughs) oh i've thinking of somebody but I can't think of their name <clears throat> you know so, someone who's not very just, just say someone who's not very good looking but everybody likes them as an actor and actress um, um, if because of our, our culture the way it is um, you see that person on screen and somebody might say oh that person's ugly you know what are they doing in this movie or you know whatever but then somebody somewhere tells you through through the media oh well you know they actually make that point oh well this person's not very good looking but they're a very good actor mm-hmm. yeah and so, so you have to be told through the media oh well the reason that this person is not that good looking but they still maintain their job in in the entertainment industry is because they're a very good actor otherwise the viewer wouldn't have known that <laughs> Yeah. 
Well, you see that? here's another thing to, to look at in this context is that um, art forgeries, which is there's this long history of it, of course. There was that I, – I, I recommend that documentary. You've seen it, John, F for Fake, and it's, uh, it's Orson Welles' is, uh, his, uh, documentary. I, I, I don't even recommend it for the part that you're mentioning it. I just recommend it for the part where Orson Welles is like eating a steak dinner with like good-looking women surrounding him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and drinking wine and like smoking a cigar and like you're like what <laughs> what does this have to do with the movie but uh, yeah, go on. Yeah, it just cuts <laughs> to him doing that. Yeah. Uh, I know. Like, oh, there's one other scene in there too, where he's talking about War of the Worlds, and he flat out says it's like it was done intentionally to trick people. I know. Yeah. yeah that, to paraphrase what he said, yeah, and then, um, you know, so he's going into subjects like art forgers and all that, and um, which is interesting. I, the subject I find interesting is art forgery and stuff because there's there's so many examples of it, but it's like. Um, he, he, there was one just I, I was reading about this uh, book about uh, about that sort of thing, and it was talking about this uh, he's pretty well known art forger that uh, forged some um, paintings of this other famous artist, and and like it, his subject matter was um, like a Christian subject matter that was like not even something that the artist even was known for or even had any pieces like that, but he but he came out made these paintings. And then took them to the um, experts, and the expert says, "Like, wow, these are, you know, the, some of the finest paintings we've seen by this artist. This is magnificent." And they sold for, you know, you know some outrageous sum. And, um, and there's numerous numerous examples of this, but it just it's just speaking to what we're talking about. It's like, okay, so this guy's obviously talented. He's talented in painting enough to to trick these experts into thinking he's another famous painter. And it's like okay, well, so I, I think yeah, I think in the F for fake movie, doesn't the woman, the woman who's like the, I uh, I can't remember. I think, you know, she's like the woman who's hanging out with Picasso, and the guy forges the Picasso paintings, and then she actually takes his forgeries to Picasso, and Picasso actually thinks they're his paintings too, <laughs> like signs them. I don't think yeah, he like he actually she took him to Picasso and Picasso was like, oh, yes, these are mine. <laughs> <laughs> so even the artist himself can't tell what, you know, tell the forgery from the real one. Yeah. Well, he did so many paintings. He probably could. Yeah. He wouldn't know if he painted or not. And well, that just goes to this um, idea. Well. You know, you could say maybe, well, he 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 was uh, the originator of that sort of art, that that style. But then, you know, you of course you have forgeries that fool the experts, and then, but what I think was notable about that one particular instance of forgery was like, okay, it was obviously not the guy's painting because he didn't even paint that particular subject matter. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't yeah. like he was copying something verbatim, but he was taking it and he was doing, he was taking that guy's style. And then fooling the experts that you know were supposed to 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 be able to distinguish good art from bad, yeah. And and um, they had, but the the point is that they had they had dismissed him as a as a noteworthy artist, and that was his way to come back at him and say, well, what is your criteria? Is obviously 
just arbitrary because here you are declaring me a famous artist or uh, super talented just because uh, you were tricked into thinking it was some other artist. Yeah. But yep. yeah, and so that's, a, that's some good examples of that where it's like, well, it's, 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 it's an arbitrary component to to all that, definitely. Yeah, I mean, shoot. How do we how do we know any of these pieces, you know, any anything beyond the 20th century? How do, how do you even know those are the real ones hanging in the museums anyways? You well, know. you don't, and that's the point. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I, I'm not doubt, I'm not doubting Monet or Renoir actually painted those, but the ones that are in the museums themselves, you know, you think you might think you're going to go see Da Vinci's Mona Lisa. It's like, it's like that's the most copied painting of all time. It's how do you know that's the one? Well, like Salvador Dali did this for years where he wasn't, he just didn't paint. They just had like lithographs. They had just, re, just crappy reproductions of his work and he would just sign them. And so he said, well, like he's forging his own art. But it's like, yeah. it's like, uh, I forget his quote, what he said about it. But yeah, it's, it's more or less. It's like if, they, if the, the experts don't know the difference, then what's the difference, you know? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I actually, I actually went to an exhibit of Dolly lithographs one time, and um, so he cranked out tons of them. Yeah, they're pretty, they're pretty accessible, apparently. But they're signed and they're dollies, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Well, hey, cool. But uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's art. I mean, like, like art is subjective, and it's uh. You know, I, I'm not dismissing any of the so-called greats or whatever, but uh, yeah, it's like what you know. It's it's this is the whole thing too with um, scarcity and the you know commodifying something, and um, you know it's it's. Well, that's what I was going to say about the Picasso thing with the lady tricking him into thinking those were his own paintings. It's like, well, that's because of the commodities, you know, the commodization of art is. That's what you get out of it is got guys cranking out paintings. You got guys cranking the paintings out so much so, you know, to main to become for the purpose of becoming wealthy. And, you know, I mean, there's an argument either way here. I, I don't know what to make of that, but so much so to where the art becomes kind of meaningless to where the painter himself can't even recognize his own work. Right. So, how special is it in that context? Well, not not very. It's almost like where it's kind of where you've developed this brand, and yeah. the brand takes a life of its own. Well, they talk about that's like okay. Fast forward twenty seventeen. It's Donald Trump is a brand, and that he's always he's operated for years just where he's uh, just basically a. a someone who's a PR person, a marketing person, where he's selling like this brand, this Trump brand on real estate, which has nothing to do with anything that he actually directly contributed to the the, the quality of the property that he puts his name on. So it's, it's just this brand. Yeah, I remember, you know, it's another interesting thing. Um, 
maybe we can end with this or you can say something about what I'm going to say here. There, there was, there's a particular guitar player that a lot of guys who are into guitar are um, kind of obsessed with at a certain level. Um, Chris knows who I'm talking about, Jimmy Bryant. And mm-hmm. Jimmy Bryant, before he was, you know, he was a session guy. And um, and so, you know, the people would try to talk to him from time to time about certain things that he did on particular songs. And I think, you know, and I'm paraphrasing from one of the interviews, you know, somebody's asking him about something that he did on a song. And he's like saying, he's like, you know, that was, you know, you're talking about this thing that I did, you know, 30 years ago and it was this you know something I probably did like you know I probably recorded 20 other songs that same day he's like to me to me that's like kind of nothing and you know there's this you know I'm basically basically saying like there's all these people who are obsessed with this one thing that I did on this song he's all and you know that's something that I just would do every day mm-hmm. yeah to you know to get paid right. and so it's it's like you know one man's uh <laughs> trash is another you know, man's treasure or something yeah kind of, kind of sort of but also it, you know somebody um who is gifted skilled and talented when things are being com- commodified their talent is kind of um even though that person remains talented the talent never goes away it's just kind of it's uh, spent. Yeah. You know, um, and then unfortunately someone like Jimmy Bryant will, you know, be forgotten long into the dark ages of history and, you know, Rick Knowles and Billy Steinberg songs will live on forever. <laughs> you think so? I don't know about that. Uh, well, they'll, they're, they're going to get more exposure but i don't know well i guess uh as long as the internet is around people well the only exposure be- they're getting I'm, sh- I'm i'm telling you right now there's probably nobody else on a podcast right now talking about those guys except for me and you uh i've never heard of them mentioned i wouldn't know yeah right it's like um but are they notable in the fact that they have a direct pipeline into so many young minds so that they can put this psychic driving into their heads like you and Cameron on a mass scale? I mean, I, I think that that's something to look at where you have this. Anybody's got to admit the potential there for influence. And um, like, what is that as far as far as a commodity goes? How much is that worth? You know, it's like you know, people focus in on the music. What, what about the message in this music and the influence it has over minds? And that being in itself a a, a commodity, a marketable commodity. Um, well, it, well, it definitely is. That's why that uh, that's why it's so guarded as a as an industry it's like what are the what are the industry's secrets you know how do you get in how do you get to be successful it's like well you you're not in the club so you're not going to be 
um, it's by invitation only. It's uh, right. yeah, it's like the people in the know that are into this. Um, see, because people say this too. I've heard this with um, I was that guy Matt Dillon, honey, that I. I, I I had a video where I called him and I was trying to d- get into a debate with him. He was talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I was listening to another audio where he's this other caller and he's and he's and he's. Uh, so the guy is going into like how how evolution theory is uh, this sort of. Uh, it's, it's not you know there's it's not evidence based and it's like you know kind of like stuff I. I go into a lot and it's like Matt Dillon honey was saying, well, what are you telling me? This is some like vast conspiracy where they're deliberately, you know, it's like, um, well, here's the thing about it. And it's like with this, uh, religion that we're talking about, this hermeticism and this esoteric beliefs, it's like, no, it's a, it's a belief system. People are in these belief systems. Evolution theory is a belief system. Now, it's 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 associated with engineering and and your computer and your it's the same process that brings you your um, LED lights is what brings you evolution theory and it's like that is not true there's an association there but it's not true it's a it's a it's a belief system that just happens to be closely associated with science this thing called science and it's like well with any other belief system you talk about Mormonism or you know, Catholicism or whatever, they have their objects of veneration, which is their, the things that back up what they say they believe. You know, it's like the tablets of gold. Joseph Smith got them from the angel. Where do they go? Well, they're lost. They're, they, they got taken back up to heaven or whatever, but they're these objects. So if you could find them, they have significance to Mormons, and they don't have that much significance to anybody else. It's like you find a bone in the ground. It's like, what is it? It's some salamander lizard thing. And it's like, what is it? Is it how is it significant? Well, it's because... That it's, there's a, a significance attached to it, and then it's this so-called missing link. It wouldn't mean anything if you found it out in your yard or anything. You would you would probably throw it away or get rid of it. It's but it's like it, it's it's a significance that's placed on it through it's through the scientific priest class and interpreting it and putting this value on it. And it's like um, yeah, the, so the idea that oh so these people these culture creators that and we're going into like oh this um it's like what well this is part of their belief this is their belief system it's like you know so you can say yeah this is a, it's a it's a conspiracy but it's also a a belief system that these people are into and they believe that they're uh, from their perspective that they're they're doing good they're doing good works within the context of their particular religion but they just happen to have this value put on secrecy. They don't go around telling everybody they're, uh, you know, a, a dualist or a agnostic or whatever they, whatever their particular flavor of this occultism is. Uh, they yeah, keep it they, secret. They, and they believe in maintaining control of the culture, and they understand the control of both sides of the light and the dark. The true and the untrue the good and the bad and um yeah so yeah they they definitely believe in what you're saying that's for sure i just got one more thing to mention here okay i i brought i brought up the bangles they had you know billy Stern, steinberg wrote you know in in 
in your room and um, Eternal Flame. The the biggest Bengals song is Walk Like an Egyptian. Yeah. Yeah, right? That was their number one. That was their biggest hit. Yeah, so Walk Like an Egyptian. Like I said, you know, there's all these songs in the 80s being written for these women that have all these esoteric meaning and, you know, Freemasonic meanings and stuff like that. So this this is kind of funny. The guy who wrote... um, and it was a man again, of course. He wrote uh, "Walk Like an Egyptian." His name was Liam Sternberg. Okay. Um, says here, as a songwriter, Liam is also noted for being the composer of the theme for the hit television program Twenty One Jump Street." Okay. That's it. <laughs> Seriously, wow. The old. The only two songs he wrote of note are Walk Like an Egyptian and the theme to 21 Jump Street. And that's pretty much it. And that's it. <laughs> so with that song, even though it's a Egyptian reference, uh, of course, you know, Walk Like an Egyptian or whatever. With, now, you're not going to go and say, even though there's definitely a... Of course, Egyptology and all the stuff we were just talking about, there's a direct connection there. But I, would you say maybe this guy wrote this song and then not being kind of part of this club and then it just, and the reason why it was like, oh, we're definitely going to take this and we're going to play it was uh, because it happened to fit in the context, but it's not necessarily a, uh, a song knows? crafted for that intent. Maybe. I don't know. Who knows? Or maybe maybe he was in the club and he wrote that one song and he's like, all right, that's it. I'm cool. Yeah, like he's a member of that belief system, that uh, cult cultism. Um, yeah, yeah that's why like you'll see this stuff too, and then we've talked about this too before, where it's like uh, people mimic what they see and mimic what they see is popular. So it's like kind of... Um, yeah, could have been walk like an Egyptian was kind of something like, um, oh, you know what? You know it'd be another good song, another terrible song with walk in the title, but equally um, important to this discussion was that I think it came out in the late '80s. There's a song called "Walk the Dinosaur." Walk the dinosaur. Okay. <laughs> Walk the Dinosaur by Was Not Was. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And it was obviously promoting evolution, you know? Well, yeah, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You know, it's it's late and I'm I'm getting um, delirious. Yeah, me too, man. All right, cool. Good call, man. Call. Yeah, good call. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Have a good night. All right, man. Take care. Thank you.
Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.